Hey folks, we are back with another edition of Behind the Yellow Line, a baseball podcast. We got a full crew here tonight. Jeremy Spector with us. Randall J. Sanders is here. I am Ronan O'Shea, and you are here for this 38th edition of Behind the Yellow Line. Lots to talk about as the 2021 season is sunset here for the Chicago Cubs. They go winless in their final homestand. They're in Pittsburgh now, three games in St. Louis this weekend, and that's it for the Cubs. So a lot to talk about here with this current roster, some injury moves, a couple of things to be looking at with the final four games of the season here on the horizon. Um, We also want to talk about this final series in St. Louis. We've got weather from our buds at Cubs Weather. And St. Louis Cardinals, red hot, 17 wins in a row. They've clinched the second wild card. We will also talk updated Major League Baseball playoff picture. Just a couple more races to go. We'll shed some thoughts on that. Also, some big news coming out of Tampa Bay. The Rays are talking about a plan here to play half their season in Tampa Bay, the other half of the season in Montreal. And we want to get our thoughts, what we think about that in the conversation here. And then we're going to go back, folks, 20 years, one more Ballad of the 2001 Chicago Cubs. I got a couple more stories that I want to share with you from that team. And then we will bring that home here. And then as we've done the last couple of weeks, final five, 10 minutes of the show, lots to talk about with the Chicago Bears here. An embarrassing loss last weekend. The Lions coming into town this weekend. And all this news about Arlington Heights. Red hot. The Bears may be moving out of the city. So we'll get our thoughts on that. But gentlemen, it's good to have you both here tonight. And I think you both agree with me. It's been a disappointing season. We know that. We've talked about that ad nauseum. Sucks, though, to end the season without being able to get one more win at Wrigley Field. A winless final homestand here for the Cubs. Just tragic, tragic final homestand. Six games on the final homestand. You can't get one win in there. You can't play Go Cubs Go for the home fans one more time. And you know what really cheeses me off? The final home game of the year where traditionally – the grounds crew is supposed to sing the seventh inning stretch. It was some random country music singer. I don't know what happened. I don't know what wire got crossed there. I don't know who made that decision. It's small, but it's disappointing. Well, I have one thing that maybe will lessen the blow a little bit. A new tradition started this year with the grounds crew. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, Randall. Andy Green also installed this in the Cubs coaching staff. Final day of the year, the groundskeepers get to do batting practice Mm -hmm. on the field at Wrigley before the game. So I'm with you. I like them singing the stretch the final day of the year. I don't care. Sorry, Ryan. I know you saw that country artist the day before in Tinley Park. I don't care about country pop singers singing at Wrigley. I wish the anthem went to the groundskeepers, but at least I got the home run derby. And that's a very, very special moment. Those are the caretakers of the field and they take very good care of that facility with all the concerts and extra crap going on at the ballpark. Neat that they got to at least swing for the fences. And I think one of them either put it in the bleachers or put it up against the wall. That's pretty cool. That's a shot for anybody. Yeah, Dan Kiermeyer, Kevin Kiermeyer's brother, who is also the Cubs head grounds uh, keeper. uh, He went out of the yard. He hit one out. Wow. So, you know, obviously coming from an athletic family there. Uh, But, you know, I'm actually glad Thomas Rhett got to sing the the seven things stretch on a final day because I got to hear Randall talk about what cheeses him off. And uh, on our pod, on our pod, so that made me kind of glad, but also disappointing that you know I couldn't get you out there. A loss to the Cardinals, John Lester, disappointing. You know, you wonder if uh, Dan Kiermeyer found maybe uh, a pitching machines scouting report card on the ground like his brother did. That's why he was able to go yard. Well, it was Andy Green throwing the pitches, so yeah. they oh, got oh. the scouting report oh. on him. And there and, we go, yeah. there we go, controversy. <laughs> But a disappointing end of the season. The Cubs are wrapping up their final couple of games. They're in Pittsburgh now. 
trying to win at least one. We're recording this during the uh, Wednesday. Uh, right now it's three to two in the ninth. The Cubs got the bases loaded. So we'll update that before the end of the show. But just three more in St. Louis. Season's over. And a real bummer here that you got to play the Cardinals when they're playing such great baseball. 17 consecutive wins here in the month of September. They've secured the second wild card. Nightmare scenario here that suddenly the St. Louis Cardinals are the hottest team in baseball and another postseason appearance for the Redbirds. Yeah, 17 in a row is pretty insane. I mean, that's the longest streak in National League Baseball, I think, since 1935, which might have been the Cubs when they had a 20-plus win streak, um, which we'll probably talk about at the end of this podcast. But uh, it, it's just insane for the Cardinals to you know win 17 in a row. They had an under 3% chance of making the playoffs, according to the Fangraphs' playoff probability, in early September. And they pulled off 17 in a row. Uh they went through. They've beaten up some pretty good teams in that in that uh, streak, and now they're going to ch- get a chance to face uh, either the Do- Dodgers or the Giants, which will be a tough matchup. But uh, you know, I never like to see the Cardinals in the playoffs, and I know Randall never likes to see the Cardinals in the playoffs as well. You know, it's it's tragic. It, it's absolutely tragic that the Cardinals have devil magic their way to another playoff berth. You know, people people tried to tell me the devil magic was dead. The devil magic never dies. Watch one monster movie in your life. Show me the body. The devil magic never dies. It just goes to sleep for a couple seasons. Particularly tough postseason for the Cubs this year, too. We've got all the former greats that are playing for various teams. But the Cardinals are in. The Brewers are in. Chicago White Sox are in. So this isn't a year where you just want one team to kind of go away quickly there are multiple threats that would make October pretty uncomfortable for us, but we're going to talk more around the rest of the league. I want to keep with the Cubs here right off the top and something that's top of mind here, a pitcher that none of us wanted to come to the Chicago Cubs this year, the Cubs trade you Darvish. We've talked about his struggles in San Diego this season. The bulk of the return in that trade that the Cubs made last November are teenagers. These are guys that we're hoping will be in the Cubs lineup in the next three to four years. One major leaguer they got back, Zach Davies, his last outing against St. Louis over the weekend, just two innings, six runs, all learned on seven hits. His last four games pitching for the Cubs here, six earned runs, four earned runs, five earned runs, six earned runs. He hasn't gone more than four in the third innings. This has been a really difficult season for Zach Davies. The one positive for Zach Davies is he's made his starts, 32 starts this year. We may see him one more time this season for the Chicago Cubs. But when you look at it all told, he's right around zero war. He's going to finish with an earned run average somewhere around six. Jeremy, it hasn't worked out for Zach Davies this year for the Cubs. When we look to next year, is this a guy you want anything near this roster or is this goodbye Zach Davies here in the next few days? Well, I, I, you know, I, I would not probably make an effort to re-sign Zach Davies. I mean, He's been pretty terrible this year. There was a small stretch, you know, I want to say kind of when the Cubs are doing pretty well, where he had a few decent starts. But honestly, I hope, you know, the Cubs learn their lesson a little bit here with going with this staff of guys that can't throw hard. I mean, look at the bullpen. Bullpen's been successful. The bullpen's got some, you know, stuff in it. The staff does not. They can't, you know, just a bunch of two-seamers that barely top out at 90 miles per hour. So hopefully, in my opinion, you know, the Cubs aren't looking for guys like that next year hopefully they're looking to get a little more stuff in the in the rotation because I, I i don't want another hendrix davies alec mills all this in the rotation next year so you know i'm a little surprised they didn't trade him at the deadline i thought there was a chance there i the mets apparently preferred trevor williams um he gave you the starts that's a good thing i mean he, he you can't 
you know, you, somebody has to eat up the innings. And so I expect them to latch on somewhere, but, and the Cubs have holes next year. So they do need a lot of starting pitching, but hopefully to me, uh, you know, Zach Davies will probably end up somewhere else next season. Yeah. I, I don't personally need Zach Davies back next year. The only scenario in which I'd welcome him back is if he's willing to take a minor league deal uh, and he can go be depth at Iowa, that would, that would be okay. I suppose. I, I don't have any need for Zach Davies beyond that. Well, he hasn't been particularly good in about five years. He had two years there in Milwaukee, 2016 and 2017, getting you two and a half to three war. That's going to work in a rotation. He just hasn't been near that the last couple of years, and it has not worked out in Chicago this year. Jeremy, you're right. The Cubs need starting pitching, but they need some velocity in that starting rotation. Hendricks is going to be back. I am optimistic that Kyles is going to pitch better next year. I don't want Zach Davies anywhere near the Cubs next season. They've got to address the rotation. There are going to be plenty of arms out there that they can spend some money on, either high-end or middle-of-the-pack guys. But what I don't want the Cubs to do this offseason is nickel and dime the starting rotation like they did last year. You know, Bringing in a guy like Zach Davies, bringing in Trevor Williams, the corpse of Jake Arrieta, what a disaster that was to see. The Cubs need to spend legitimate money on the starting rotation. And the good news is there's arms out there. There are pitchers that you can go and get this winter. That has to be priority one a and one B frankly for the Cubs this winter. You know, Jake Arietta between the game in Milwaukee where he surrendered that seven run lead early on and then going out and pitching for the Padres, you could argue he ended two seasons. He ended the season for two teams between that start, because that is where Jed said, he pulled their advanced scouts off of looking at trade targets and reassigned them to looking at prospect targets. And then the, the fine work he did for the Padres, you could argue he ended two seasons this year. Yeah. I, you know, you're totally right about Zach Davies, Ronan. Uh, I, I was never a big fan of Zach Davies. I, I, I know some others had liked him. People, you know, compared him to Kyle um, last year though, he had a pretty solid ERA in the shortened season in a, very good pitchers ballpark San Diego. So I guess there was, you know, some hope there that maybe some run, they, they wouldn't score some runs, but Zach Davey uh, off of him, but Zach Davies has always been to me like a four fifth starter. And the Cubs are putting him in a spot where he was kind of your number two starter. Uh, it, it was just not a good situation to have. So I totally agree with you. There's definitely some arms out there. You know, I, I, for me, a guy I think would be kind of interesting and he only pitched one inning yesterday would be uh, Noah Syndergaard uh, with the New York Mets. I think that would be an interesting guy to take a flyer on for next year or however. I don't know. It depends on what Syndergaard would want. Obviously, it depends on how the Cubs feel, but um, I think he's a good guy to, to take a look at. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but that's my interest. Looks good. I mean, injury is the concern with a guy like that, but when he's yep. on the mound, he's absolutely dominant. And we're talking about velocity. You can't yeah. pick a better perfect with regards to that. Um, and I don't know what he's going to cost. That's something that's interesting because not only do you have a guy with an injury history, but there's so much uncertainty with this offseason. There's not going to be any movement in free agency until the collective bargaining agreement is figured out. So I think what we're going to have is two or three, maybe four months of nothing just fighting between players, fighting between owners, then this mad dash to sign everybody as spring training gets ramped up. So it, it adds some anxiety, I think, to the offseason that it's not like, okay, let's get through the World Series and let's go get planning on our team next year. You can't build a roster until you know how salary structures are going to change. And if there's going to be a salary cap in the game, all of these things are going to impact what you do with your team. And teams are sort of handcuffed 
until we get clarity on what it's going to be. So that, that adds frustration going into this off season. It's going to be slow. It's going to be painfully slow, particularly November into December. Yeah, that, that is definitely a possibility and, uh, and pro- probably a pro- uh, and a probability maybe, but I also think there will be certain guys that probably will want to sign early just because of that uncertainty. Cause there's so much uncertainty. They're going to, I mean, I don't know about teams, teams with all the uncertainty there, they probably will be like that. Like, you know, we don't know what the cap's like we or the tax is like, we don't know what anything's like. So we don't want, but there are probably guys that are going to want to sign cause not the high end guys and probably not even middle, but maybe more guys who don't know what their, their value is. Anyways, they might be willing to sign early just to be somewhere before everything, you know, a mad dash occurs in February or January or who knows before you don't want to be the one left out. So, you know, I, I could see that. And I don't know about Thor being one of those guys, but, you know, maybe, you know, there's some uncertainty there. I could see him wanting to go with a short term deal because he wants to build himself back up, take a flyer on next year. And then if he has a great season, he'd go be in line for a big payday. I could also see the opposite. I could see him being a guy who doesn't want any risk. He wants to get something, you know, a, a, maybe more of a short term deal. Now it's something super long term because I don't think anybody would sign him super long term, but, you know, just to get some money and, and to have some certainty to his life. So, I don't know, but I, I, I think he's a pretty solid option. There, there's going to be a lot of guys on the market this offseason that are really difficult to predict what they're going to get. You have guys like Syndergaard with all the talent in the world, but they haven't been able to stay on the field the past few seasons. You have guys like our old friend Javi Baez, who is a, a wildly varying player in his production, not in his ability, but in his production. And, you know, it's difficult to predict in a normal offseason what these guys would get on the free agent market. You throw in the uncertainty of what's going to be a contentious CBA discussion. It's going to be an offseason, probably unlike one we've seen in quite a while between the, the players and their variability and between the labor situation. So it, it's going to be a very, it's going to be, a, I, I don't even know roller coaster is the word because that would imply that it's going to be a long up and down. I think it's going to be a, a lot of very surprising activity in a very short time. Randall, how do you feel about uh, Javi Baez quotes about how he's a New York kind of man these days? He uh, wants to stay in New York. He's not looking to come back. He thinks he's up there with Frankie Lindor to be best friends for all time. Javi, Javi, blink twice if you're being held hostage. So you don't believe him? No, no, I don't believe him. I think he's being coerced. I think they have one of his pit bulls maybe kidnapped. And they, they're telling Javi that, you know, if you don't say these things, we're going to feed the pit bull, you know, bad food or something. I don't want to wish harm He's been, he's been playing pretty well lately. He's on he a 13-game hinge streak. He has been playing well. And that's that's Javi. He goes on these streaks. And, you know, the a great stat about the Mets, they are the first team to spend – as much time as they did in first place and go on to miss the playoffs, which is the most I'm, New York Mets stat. The Cubs spent a lot of time at first base and are missing the playoffs as well this year. They so did. They really did. Talk. But the Mets, I'll, you know what? I will. Ron Santo gave me license to say anything I want about the Mets. If anybody, if anybody in the Mets wants to be angry at me, they, they know where to find me. I don't think we have any Mets fans. Among all, the listeners. all I know is Theo's going to come back to the Mets. He's going to sign Javi Baez. He's oh. going to crush Randall's dreams, Ronan's dreams. I sure hope not. I don't think that's in the cards for Theo either. I know New York wants it. Um, yeah, I don't think it. that's where he's going. I, I think he's it's still going to be a few more years until we see him back in Major League Baseball. And I think the next time we see him in Major League Baseball, he's going to be part of an ownership group. That's the direction that I think that he's going. Here's another picture that I want to talk to you guys about. Randall's quick question. Super quick trivia. I'm putting you on the spot here. The spotlight's on you, Randall. Which Cubs pitcher leads the team in war this year? Oh, God. Um I am going to guess 
uh, I'm going to guess Kyle Hendricks. So he's not on the team anymore. Craig Kimball. He's not on the team anymore. Going to end up leading the team here in war at 2-2. Probably should have guessed that. Second in line, though, is the guy that I want to ask you both about, Alec Mills. We've seen him in the starting That was going to be my guess. We've seen him in the bullpen. He's not owed anything really next year. He's making about 700 grand next season. This is a guy that's going to fit somewhere into the team, not necessarily in the starting rotation, but would you say it's fair to say it's probably going to be similar to this year where he can make some spot starts. He can give you long stretches in the rotation if there's injuries, but he can also be a guy that you can get in that bullpen. Is that the optimal role for Alec Mills next season? You know, for my money, no, because he Hmm. has struggled operating out of the pen. Uh, he was in the bullpen to start the season and the, the results weren't nearly as good. He took, he made the jump back to the rotation and his last month and a half or so, notwithstanding the results were a lot better. I think he's earned the right to be in the discussion for the back end of the rotation. I'm fine with him starting the season as your kind of number six, number seven guy. Uh, it, it hasn't been as good for him out of the bullpen. And I think he's earned the opportunity to try and fight for maybe that number five spot, depending on what you do elsewhere. So I would prefer not to see Mills in the bullpen. I'd prefer to see him hopefully as a productive, cheap, um, you know, uh, 88 mile an hour guy in the starting rotation, more so than jumping back and forth, because I don't think that role has worked terribly well for him. Uh, as, as I previously said, I'm not, I'm not like the biggest Alec Mills fan. Um, I'm not, I like guys that can throw hard. Um, and Alec Mills, he struggled a little bit. He struggled. I know I, uh, with some starts lately, he struggled out of the pen. Um, personally for, I, I do think he will have a spot somewhere next year on the road on the team. And I, I think he might even have a leg up on some other guys and getting a rotation spot. But personally, I think I would rather see, you know, uh, Keegan Thompson, Justin Steele, Advert, Elzele, all be fighting out for it with a little bit more of advantage. I know those three guys all probably have pitched better out of the pen this year than they did in the rotation. But I would like to see them go into spring training with chances to actually show up and throw and, and see if they could be in the rotation. And of course, I would also like to see the Cubs actually going out there and acquiring one, two starters that we definitely need. So we pushing these guys back uh, down a little bit if you're really fighting for a fifth spot. Um, so, yeah, I, I, but Alec Mills, so I, he'll definitely be around. I know that. And, I, and he'll definitely have starts next year. Well, we haven't seen Adbert start since the middle of August, August 13. Um, in relief, though, he's had some really nice appearances, including three and two-thirds over the weekend against St. Louis. That's three and two-thirds scoreless. So Adbert's going to be in the mix. There's tons of arms there, but we're all in agreement. they got to address the starting rotation. That's going to be something the Cubs need to spend money on. And we've got a lot of weeks coming up here to continue to talk about that. Um, one other note, pitching-wise, bullpen really rough, especially those last two games against St. Louis, Saturday and Sunday, nine innings, nine earned runs. There are some arms in this bullpen that are very interesting. We've talked about Rowan Wick, Um, even Manny Rodriguez, who's been struggling more of late. There's still a lot of interesting promise in there. Cody Hoyer has been a little bit up and down. Bullpen is probably going to need a little bit of attention. I think a couple weeks ago, I said here, it's probably the least most important thing the Cubs need to address this winter, but there are still some holes there and we've seen that play out over the last few weeks. Yeah. I think the Cubs will probably address it in similar ways. They've addressed it the last two seasons. I don't think they'll go out and make any major signings there. I think they'll probably bring in some guys that they like the way they throw, um, see if they can work it out. I, I thought it was pretty impressive. That Jason Adam made his way back somehow. He was pretty much DFA gone, broke his ankle, destroyed his leg or whatever. And then he's back at the end of the year and he's, he was looking pretty good. Uh, but I would like to see, you know, a full offseason from, you know, Manny Rodriguez and spring training, uh, Cody Hoyer, 
uh, you know, some of these other guys that the Cubs have in the, in the, in the bullpen right now and see them come into spring training, fighting for a spot and see how that plays out. And so I, I, I think that they, they have some good pieces and I expect them to add some pieces as well. Cause you know, you always want to be adding bullpen arms. You, you, you can never have enough to be honest and you never know who's going to break out and who's not. So that would, it'll be nice to see them do that all the off season. But I, there are some arms in there that I'm very intrigued by. And I think will could have be pretty successful next season. Get some darts, yeah. throw those darts, see what sticks. And that's how you can put together a bullpen these days. There's no shortage of hard throwing relievers. You can get them all over the place. They're cheap. And if you can get it working, even if it's just for a couple of months of time, it can help you win a lot of ball games. So we'll see what the Cubs do with that. Some bad news here. Patrick Wisdom, his wonderful rookie season with the Cubs, over and done with, there was some speculation, maybe a, a COVID positive test for Patrick, but he finishes the season here with 28 home runs. We wanted him to get to 30. He's going to end up falling just short of that. And bummer news here. Randall, also not the only roster changes over the last 24 hours or so. What, what else do we got? Uh, well, with um, a number of, unfortunately, with wisdom on this unnamed IL, which is usually code for he has COVID, but we're not going to announce it publicly. They've brought up Trent Jambroni, who uh, been in the Cubs minor league system a very long time. He was drafted in 2016. Um, you know, he's in a somewhat interesting player. He's an infielder, second base, third base. He's got some power. Um, it's, it's nice for him though. He's been in the minor leagues quite a while. He'll, he'll come up, he'll get his cup of coffee for these final five games. Now, you know what? Good for him. And it's unfortunate. I said yesterday, um, piggybacking on what some, what somebody else had said on Twitter, really the only thing that is going to make these last two series interesting is if the Cubs make one more surprise call up to account for the lack of warm bodies on the roster. You have Jason Hayward out for the season with a concussion. You have Nico Horner. He's probably done for the season with what they're calling general soreness salute. Um, you have Michael Hermosillo, who's been out for about a month. Now you have Alfonso Rivas with a finger injury that turned out to be more severe than they were expecting. He's done for the season. Keegan Thompson done for the season. Uh, and uh, Manny Rodriguez was done for the season when they put him on the IL. And now Patrick wisdom is probably done for the season. So you've got a lot of guys who you would have again, liked to get, see more developmental time and that's not going to happen for injuries. So good for Trent Jambroni. He'll Jambroni. He'll enjoy these last five games, no matter what happens next year, he'll always be able to say he was a major league baseball player and not everyone gets to say that. So good for him. You wish it were in a better season and under better circumstances, but it's not. <laughs> yeah. Trent got his first career hit tonight. So that's pretty cool. I was always a Trent Jam Jambroni fan. I thought that, uh, you know, I always like to see him Bodie. There's some guys in the minors that I always thought it was Zach short is another one of them. Some middle infielders that I thought, you know, has some interesting numbers, had some interesting, you know, metrics that I thought, Hey, maybe they can figure out a way to stick in the, in the majors around how Trent, he struggled a little bit over the last couple of years, had a great spring training a couple of seasons ago. So, and he's a little guy. I like that. So, um, I like seeing Trent out there. So we'll, we'll, you know, I'm a big fan. I hope he sticks around more longer than just these five games. Yeah. And a, a tidbit about Trent Jambroni that uh, some people there, I'm sure there's one other person out there who will find this interesting. He is wearing number 85. He is the first cub in franchise history to play a regular season game on the field wearing number 85. So if you're doing something that has not been done in a franchise, the history of a franchise, that has been around 
uh, 150 years at this point. Uh, that's that's not nothing. It, it's pretty close to nothing, but it's not nothing. Well, I was going to ask about that earlier. I I, I remember I, now that you brought it up, that just triggered me because I remember watching some the highlights from getting his first hit. You know, how do how do we feel about that? How do we feel about a guy with a number in the 80s playing for the Cubs? You know, I think I think that's the perfect number to give a guy at the end of a season like this who's up for the final five games. Uh, a guy with a long time in the minor leagues. I think 85 is a perfect number for a guy like that. Ron, you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. I got lots of thoughts on it. I started talking and I forgot I was on mute. So let me say it one more time here. It's rare I when love... Ron mutes himself. It's very yeah. rare. It's like Randall Heaven. I've yeah. tried. <laughs> it is Randall Heaven. <laughs> Randall's done everything he can to mute, silence, <laughs> yeah. muffle me. And at the end of the day, it's me who mutes myself. Yeah. And that's where he gets his moment of peace. You know, I was thinking recently, there's only a handful of numbers in Cubs history that haven't been worn. Randall, 69, has never been worn by a Chicago Cub. There's a couple other numbers in the 80s or so that haven't been worn. I kind of like this recent trend here. The last, I don't know, decade or so, guys, even superstar-type players, wearing more obscure numbers. I was always a fan of 99, and I know Todd Hunley wore it, but if I were a Chicago Cub, 99 would be my number. I like the fact that these players, like anybody can wear, well, not with the Cubs anymore, but anywhere can wear 23 or 25 or 17. Those are numbers you see with every team. If you're the first 85 and you own 85, I love it. There are a few things left in baseball like that that you can claim for your own. And now we got an 85, but maybe someday we'll get a Cub in the high 60s or some of those other 80s and 90 numbers. There's never been a Cub to wear 90, 91, 92, or 93. 92 is a kind of cool number for like a hard throwing relief pitcher. I'd love to see it happen. I think there is a, a certain something about that. A guy who comes up and does really well in a really high number and he decides to keep it because we all know how superstitious baseball players are. So I think there's a little something to that. And you're right. It has increased in frequency the last few years and especially last year with the various roster machinations that had to go on. So, yeah, you are seeing that as a continuing trend. And if I'm not mistaken, the Cubs have had, uh, three players this year who made their Cub debuts this year wearing a number as the first wearer of that number in Cubs history. Mm. Trevor McGill in 74. Robert mm. Stock wore number 89, first wearer in team history. Now you have 85. And of course, Adbert did not debut this season, but he is the first Cub to ever wear number 73. So you're seeing a lot of franchise firsts all across MLB. And as someone who uh, tracks all of this as it comes across my desk, uh, you are seeing a lot of first wearer in team history. Uh, I will say, though, as of last season, every numeral, zero, double zero, and then one through 99, has been worn in a major league game at least hmm. once. So there are no unworn numbers across MLB in the history of the game. We took care oh, of that okay. last year. Well, pretty soon, the uh, Yankees, you know, that'll all be what they're wearing, just numbers in the high 80s. and Or 70s. they're going to have to assign fractions like in Futurama. Yeah, or they'll or have three. Yeah, three not digits. full inter integers, three digits, because they're pretty much they have the they have no more single digit numbers left. That's right. And the they're Yankees, moving, the they're Yankees moving their way through, up one through nine and zero. I don't think the Yankees allow zero. I think they think themselves above it. But one through nine all retired. Uh, triple digit numbers are used in NPB, Nippon Professional Baseball, hmm. the Japanese major leagues for their version of spring training players, their version of uh, minor league invitees. They do assign triple digit numbers to those players. Uh, I figure we're probably 
a little ways away from that in MLB. I think teams will just start to mine those numbers in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. But, you know, as more and more guys come up, numbers keep getting retired. Eventually, you're going to have to do something. So we'll see what they do. In the, in the NHL, uh, there was kind of a trend for the last few years, uh, probably last, you know, 10, 15 years or so for a lot of especially high draft picks to where the uh, year they were born as their number. You know, you see a lot of 88s, 89, 91, 92, 93, 97, all the way up. So I'm a little surprised that that hasn't really kind of come over to other sports. Baseball, I think stock wore 89 because he was born in 89. But, hmm. you know, that's just uh, it's just kind of a little new, numeric fact about the NHL. A lot of NHL players, Patrick Kane, 88. Well, I think this is a perfect time to talk about. This is the 38th episode of yep. Behind the Yellow Line. This is a Chicago Cubs podcast. And periodically, we've grabbed that number, the number of the podcast. We've looked at players who've worn that number. Randall, 38, this is right in our wheelhouse. As soon as we got to number 38, Carlos Zambrano, Big Z, popped in my head. We're going to talk about him and our ballot of the 2001 Chicago Cubs in a little bit. But, Randall, we got to be on the same page here. When 38 comes to mind and you're a Cub of a certain age, Big Z is the guy that pops into your head. Absolutely. Carlos Zambrano, a great 10 seasons, 11 seasons in the Chicago Cubs uniform. You know, he's he's number one with a star next to him when I think of 38 in a Cubs uniform. Mike Montgomery, whom I would be incredibly remiss not to mention, and uh, who one of our loyal listeners, uh, Stan Miller, Milbo, uh, Milbo uh, 11 on Twitter, always listens to us, always has feedback for us. He said, and I quote, if Mike Montgomery number 38 isn't celebrated and berated for the obvious and for the obvious, there will be trouble. So Stan, we got you covered. Mike Montgomery, I would easily call him the second best number 38 in Cubs history. Uh, Mike Montgomery, if our listeners were not aware, he is currently playing in the KBO, Korea Baseball Organization, and he got himself into a little trouble recently. He threw a rosin bag at an umpire. Um, <laughs> yeah, he did do that. Uh, the consequences for that can apparently be as severe as deportation. He was not deported, but he was suspended a very hefty number of games. This was in Japan. It was in Korea. He Korea. Is playing in, yes, he is playing in the KBO, the Korea Baseball Organization. And uh, yeah, he was not deported, but he was suspended, I want to say 25 games. Um, so there's a lesson here. All you young baseball players out there, don't throw things at the umpire, um, especially if you're playing overseas, where the consequences for that can include deportation. But number 38, that's Carlos Zambrano, and that's Mike Montgomery to me. Yeah, and if Randall's telling you not to throw things at the umpire, that's a, it's a big thing, so don't do it. <laughs> Uh, you know, a lot of our number 38s come to my head, you know, uh, uh, who was I thinking about? Oh, Rick Aguilera. Yeah. You know, if we're going to talk about some late, you know, we're going to talk to I mean, he wasn't on the 2001 Cubs, but some late, you know, 99, 2000 ish. Uh, uh, Mike Morgan, I believe, were 38 at one point. Yeah. Another 98 uh, pitcher, Jamie Navarro uh, was always in my head. You know, a guy who went to the White Sox. Um, but, uh, you know, just some pitchers and uh and I, I think even Mike Montgomery, he was traded for Martin Maldonado, right? And he came over and wore 38. So they just put him Maldonado in that uniform. That is that is largely what happened. That he wore 38, at last worn by the guy for whom he was traded. And of course, it is currently on Brad Wick, who his season ended um, after he had to undergo a heart procedure, which is always frightening. Yeah. Doesn't matter what your profession is. Um, sounds sounds like the procedure. Uh, a couple weeks in the past now went well, and it sounds like he will be able to be back on the field next season. We certainly wish Brad Wick all the best, but 38, one of those really interesting numbers in Cubs history. And another totally love big Z. Jake, Go ahead. Jacob Turner, a guy I had very high hopes for. I thought, you know, might be able to come never really uh, put it together in a Cubs uniform. Although 
now I'm thinking of Jacob Turner. I'm thinking of Suyoshi Wada, his, uh, you know, teammate in the rotation. And uh, that's a name we, I haven't thought about in a long time. That's something that happens a lot on this show. We <laughs> yeah. talk about guys, we pull up numbers. It's like, we're talking about Mac. It popped Newton in my head. This yeah. This phenomenon has a name it, colloquially known as remembering some guys. Well, I'm remembering you, Suyoshi Wada. And I'm remembering Carlos Zambrano. We yes. are going to talk about him in the 2001 Cubs segment. I caught the game Sunday. It was the final home game for the Cubs this year. And there was all this talk about the post-game coverage. After the game, it was the final post-game show from Wrigley Field. And then it looks like Ryan Dempster hosted his talk show or his night show, whatever you want to call that thing, on the roof above Gallagher Way. But I saw that Carlos Zambrano came back for it. And I've been going on Cubs YouTube I just want to see Big Z. The MLB TV coverage stops with the postgame show. Did either of you see the interview? Was there anything at all noteworthy to come from Carlos Zambrano talking with Ryan Dempster? I did not see the interview. I know I, I don't watch a lot of off the mound. I did record it, you know, a couple of times when he was on. I saw some other episodes that I thought was interesting. I know that uh, Brendan Bayless from Umphreys McGee uh, did a little live performance there and and, uh, you know, I, I've sat with Humphreys McGee at a, at a Wrigley Field baseball game and shared some uh, peanuts with them. And that was a pretty huh. fun experience. So about that. But uh, but other than that, I can't really tell you what happened uh, the, on off the mound. Randall might know. Uh, you know, no, I, I yeah, nothing about Ryan Dempster hosting a talk show. Maybe <laughs> you want to keep the channel uh on marquee however i will say i am the most recent person on this podcast to see carlos zambrano pitch he did so for the independent wow. chicago dogs who play out in rosemont in 2019 and there were at least two games that season where i got tickets right on the bullpen hoping to see carlos zambrano warm up and then pitch and i was fortunate enough to be able to do so both times and you know a guy who has been out of mlb for quite a while now uh, i wouldn't say he was quite bringing it um, and plus, you know, the, the gun at uh, an independent stadium, not always reliable, but it was good to see Carlos Zambrano out there, the hot dog shaped number 38 numerals on his back, pitching out there in scenic Rosemont, the airport to one side, the highway to the other side. So it's always good to see Carlos Zambrano doing whatever it is that makes him happy, whether that's pitching or otherwise. Talking to Ryan Dempster on off the mound. Talking to Ryan Dempster <laughs> Look, on off the mound. Absolutely. And I'm not interested in Ryan Dempster. I, I would just like to see the interview. One, I want to hear Big Z. I haven't heard the guy talk in probably a decade. And just see if he's talking about certain memories or experiences that he had as a Cub. Now that some time has passed and he kind of reflect back on his time in Chicago. But hasn't been posted yet, at least anywhere that I can see. Uh, still something, I'm again, going back to something we talked about these last two weeks. Cool seeing these Cubs from the early to mid-2000s coming back to Wrigley Field, whether it's Aramis, whether it's Derek Lee, Giovanni Soto, Carlos Zambrano. These are important Cubs historically, and these are particularly important Cubs to 20, 30, 40-year-old Cubs fans who grew up with some of these guys. So the fact that they are on good terms with management, that they are visible at Wrigley Field, that's an important thing. I want to see Aramis Ramirez regularly at Wrigley Field for the rest of his life, and this is the beginning of maybe that stuff becoming more frequent. So that's been a positive thing. I want to come back to the current Cubs, though. Last time we were speculating, can the Cubs avoid 90 losses? There were 10 games to go when we were talking about it, seven with the Cardinals, three with Pittsburgh. From when we recorded that show to tonight, the Cubs hadn't won. And they've gotten to 90 losses. Jeremy, you and I point our fandom back to about the mid-90s when we were really getting into it and aware of what was happening. That means that we have now seen eight 
90 lost seasons as fans of the Chicago Cubs. We had high hopes coming into this year. Randall, you said this team might win 90 games. Jeremy, you had high 80s. I was thinking maybe a 500 team. A real bummer that this thing ends up with now more than 90 losses this season. None of us wanted this back in February. No, none of us wanted this. Yeah, I said 87 wins. I'm uh, not going to get there. Going to probably be 20 wins less. Um, but uh, yeah, like you said, we've seen our fair share of 90 lost teams. And, you know, throughout the our time of watching it, often after a 90 lost teams, Cubs were surprisingly good up until about the Theo era when he just tore it down. And and that was it. You know, he, he immediately got rid of Aramis and Carlos Zambrano as some of the first things he did. I mean, Aramis was a free agent, but he let him go. Didn't make an offer to bring him back. But uh, so it'll be interesting to see what, how the Cubs plan for this 90 loss team. Because in 2006, lose 90 games. Cubs went out. They spent a ton of money. They, you know, I don't know if you, you argue whether they spent it wisely, but they did spend a ton of money. They went out. They won the division in 2007. So maybe that could be a similar thing for what happens here in, uh, you know, 2021. Uh, we have Jed Hoyer talking about the Cubs are going to be really active this offseason. You know, certain offseasons, they don't really plan on being active. But this offseason, they're going to be active. He's put those words out. He's talked about, you know, he's not even committing to for like a position for Nico Horner, which means he's thinking about who's going to play shortstop next year. He's thinking about these types of things. So, you know, I, there's a lot of holes on this team. This is not a great team. This is not a great season we've had. Uh, but I'm kind of still excited for the future because I there's I feel like there's a lot of opportunity with this team, with this farm system, with some of the young guys we have on the rotation and with all the money coming open. So, you know, it's not a great time to have a CBA problem, but I am still excited for it. You know, Jeremy, it's funny you mentioned that, uh, that they went out and spent after that 2006 season that with Dusty was done. They brought in Lou Pinella. They went out and spent on Soriano and Jason Marquis and Ted Lilly. Why were they going out and spending all that money? Because the Tribune and Sam Zell wanted to raise the value of the franchise ahead of selling it. And of course, that leads to Tom Ricketts buying it. So it's interesting how that post-2006 spending splurge kind of led indirectly to where we are now, because maybe somebody else buys the Cubs if the value of the franchise doesn't go up like it does. And who knows where we are if that happens. So that's kind of an interesting butterfly effect. I don't think... Ricketts is going to do that in advance of selling the team this offseason, as as dramatic as that would be. But it, 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 that is interesting when you brought it up, because we all know why they went out and signed those deals. They wanted the value of the franchise to go up. I mean, yeah, I, I'm trying to remember. I'm, I'm not exactly sure uh, when Sam Zell bought the team or well, he bought the Tribune company, which owned the team. Um, if that was 2007 ish or 2008 ish. And I, I know they sold to uh, Ricketts in 2009. But, yeah, they were spending a lot back then for for that um hopefully i i think that they spend a lot this offseason so that you know we want to fill those seats we want to fill brigleyville we want to fill gallagher way and the hotel zachary and all these things we've built we want to fill all you know sports the, book and that's the new sports book that's going to be built. Gotta we wanna, build the sports book we want to fill the rooftop buildings where the ricketts now own pretty much every single one you know we want people out there at wrigley so hope I, we want people watching on marquee um, so hopefully they have that same kind of plan and idea for this offseason. Um, but yeah, that 2006 offseason, you know, Jim Hendry was signing Ted Lilly from his hospital bed. That's so right. I hope nothing happens to Judd and I hope he stays clean and I hope everything's healthy. But if he has to be in the hospital bed, I expect him to be dedicated to bringing the Cubs a better team. 
Well, I got a quick thing I want to share. You're talking about rooftops, um, teach a couple sport management classes here in Denver. We were doing a lecture this week about press boxes, press rows, press conferences, media days, that type of stuff that a lot of fans never get the experience of being in a press box and watching a ball game. But I have some pictures from various press boxes around baseball and I want fans to see the perspective. And I got Wrigley Field in there and it was cool. There's some students in class going, they had no idea about the rooftops and they didn't understand how fans could sit on the rooftops and who owns those rooftops and is the team mad that these rooftops are selling tickets and I got to go on this little banter about the whole sort of saga of the rooftops and the Cubs um, it's something that you kind of take for granted baseball fans here in Denver even loyal fans you don't get things like that at other ballparks so it was fun to share the story of the Rigbyville rooftops with a bunch of college students here in Denver. Ronan, when you do these sport management classes, do you make your students take quizzes on your favorite Cubs and your least favorite Cubs? Like, do you pop quiz them? How many fingers did Coy Hill have? Uh, do you pop quiz them on how many times uh, Todd Hundley flipped off the Wrigley Field crowd? Is this all of a, like a Professor Ronan primer quiz you give them at the start of the semester and at the end of the semester and see how, what they've learned? Well, I get a little self-conscious because these are Denver fans. These are people from Colorado. I try not to bring too much Chicago stuff into the class because I want to make comparisons that will relate to them. So if we're talking about broadcasters, I talk about the Broncos broadcasters, the Rockies broadcasters, but naturally the Cubs come up all the time. You guys may enjoy this Monday morning. I teach a class eight in the morning on campus every Monday, about 20 students. Very first question, eight in the morning, Monday. Hey, Ronan, how do you feel about Matt Nagy? It's like, oh man, come on. Why, why you got to start my week off like that? You oh know? man, that's a rough way that's to start off the week. That's what you get for making it known that you're a Bears fan, man. Yeah. Well, they had fun with the uh, one passing yard and uh, Broncos playing pretty good football up to this point. So uh, we had a lot of fun with that. Um, Cubs are wrapping up the season though. They're in St. Louis for three here. The winning streak is over for the Cardinals, by the way. It snapped at 17. They fall today. So uh, that ends, fortunately, but the damage already done. The St. Louis Cardinals are in the playoffs. They're that second wild card team. Just depends what happens in the National League West to see who St. Louis is going to be playing in that one game playoff. Randall, final three games of the year. Cubs going down to St. Louis. Season's done for the Cubs. It's just a matter of how many 90 losses the Cubs are going to finish with. This is going to be a bit of an uncomfortable weekend, I think, as they continue to party in St. Louis as the Cubs season ends on a real sour note. Well, Ronan, it's always uncomfortable in St. Louis. And according to our good friend Alexander Hall, the weather is not going to assist with that much. As always, Alexander, nice enough to provide us with the weather report for the upcoming now singular series. Usually it's two series. Sadly, there's only one left, but as always, you can find him on Twitter at Alexander Hall, find his great baseball related meteorology work at Cubs weather. And without any further ado, the forecast for the final regular season series in St. Louis for the Cubs in 2021, Alexander tells us that the series vibe will be stormy, steamy, and cloudy. All of the smug emanating from the St. Louis Cardinals is going to form its own weather system. But a slow-moving, low-pressure system will bring a chance for showers Friday evening, and then showers and storms become likely for Saturday and Sunday. There should be some breaks and playable light rain, but there will be chances for delay or postponement issues throughout each game in this final series of 2021 for the Cubs. Humidity for all three games is listed as muggy or smuggy because you can't walk into the St. Louis Cardinals' uh, den of iniquity without there being smug all over the place. 
The three games, Friday night, 7.15 p.m. Central Time, Saturday evening, 6.15 p.m. Central Time, and then Sunday, 2.15 p.m. MLB doing the thing where every game on the final day of the season starts at the same time. That accounts for the somewhat odd Central Time day game start. Friday night, temperatures at game time will be in the mid-70s with winds out to the left field corner, 5 to 10 miles per hour. Saturday evening, there will be temperatures in the low 70s, winds out to center field, 5 to 10 miles per hour. And then, for the sake of variety, get all three outfield spots covered. Sunday, the day game, temperatures again in the mid-70s, uh, out to right field, 5 to 10 miles per hour. And, of course, there will be chances for rain and thunderstorms all three days. So if you are heading down to any of these games in St. Louis, bring a poncho, bring an umbrella, bring something to do. Uh, and also bring something to protect yourself from rain if you're going to the ballpark. So uh, all season, we thank Alexander for his weather forecasts. Um, Alexander does a great job putting these forecasts together for us. He's got a, a format. He's got a, an app and a website he uses to get us these uh, weather reports uh, all bound together in easy reading format, easy for me to take and read out in my uh, dulcet tones. So we thank Alexander for his contributions all seasons. He will have some material in our eventual wrap-up show. We look forward to that. But as always, follow him on Twitter, at Alexander Hall. Follow his great work with Cubs Weather, at Cubs Weather. And as always, you can often find his material retweeted by us on Twitter, at BTYL Podcast. So thank you again, Alexander. We appreciate your hard work every week giving us the forecast. Also, if we've, any, or if we've had anybody who's picked us up, uh, lately, maybe newer listeners to the podcast, if we have any out there, go back uh, to earlier in our um, time, you know, doing this. We had Alexander on the podcast, so you can listen yeah. to him. We asked him some questions, had a good conversation with Alex, and we're very thankful for Alexander coming on and having that with us. And that's the plan this offseason. We want to keep this podcast going, and we're going to be guest heavy in the offseason, especially what we anticipate being a slow start of the off season here with the collective bargaining agreement. We'll love to have Alexander back on great Twitter follow too. If you love weather photography, something I'm a big fan of just seeing the amazing shots that people get, he retweets a lot of them and he takes some good ones too. So give him a follow. And we are one week out from our first inaugural end of the season award show. We are ready for it. We're going to give out offensive awards. Randall certainly thinks I lead the show here in offensive things, but we're going to look at the offensive highlights for the Cubs. We're going to look at pitching highlights. We're going to look at defensive highlights. We're also going to mourn the bad moments. It's not all going to be great times because this wasn't a great season for the Cubs. We're going to reflect back on the season at large next week as the postseason gets ready to get going and we can kind of bring closure to this 2021 Cubs season. And real quick to jump back for just a second, if you'd like to hear our interview with Alexander Hall, you'll find that in episode nine of Behind the Yellow Line, dated March 13th, 2021. Go through our archives on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, and you'll be able to find that for your listening pleasure. Episode nine, March 13th of 2021. And go back to those spring training ones so you can see how good we were at looking into the crystal ball. Yeah. Me saying Jock Peterson's going to hit 40 bombs. Randall saying this is a 90-win team. We had so much optimism and excitement. We were wondering how many of these Cubs stars are they going to extend this year? Well, none of them. They're all gone. They're all playing for all other gone. teams that are moving into the postseason. And that's something that I want to talk about here next. We made some predictions last week and some things have changed here in Major League Baseball. So we want to look at the National League. We want to look at the American League. Where do you want to start, Randall? American League or National League? Let's start with the American League. Well, that is the league that has 
really it all coming down to the wild card. That's kind of the last thing that's up in the air. And as of recording this, New York Yankees, hot. They've surpassed the Boston Red Sox for the number one wild card team. They've got a one-game lead on Boston. Right there, though, Seattle, winners of three in a row. They're just one game back. A team hasn't made the postseason since 2001. Toronto also playing very good baseball. They are one game back. So we are midway through the week here. We're looking ahead to the final weekend of the regular season. Jeremy, a week after the last time I asked you this, how does the wild card end up in the American League? Yeah, man, it's it's tough. It's it's interesting. I I still think, you know, the Blue Jays beat the Yankees tonight. So I and they still got one more tomorrow. I, I still think that the Yankees probably get in. I think that Boston probably gets in, but it's crazy. It's seeing Seattle up there is nuts. And and Oakland probably they're probably done, but they're still playing the Mariners. So I don't know. I, I'm here rooting for Toronto. I, I like the Toronto Blue Jays. I think they're a fun team. They're a young team. I think they, I, I always love it when the Sky Dome is packed or the Rogers Center, I should say. Uh, great place, you know, to really watch ball game when it's packed and it's exciting and the fans are up there. So, I, yeah, I would like to see the Blue Jays get in there. But I, I, I still think that, I think the Yankees, I think it's going to be Yankees Bo Sox, which is crazy to see in a wild card game because you're like, those are the two of the premier teams in baseball. But they're going to be playing in a one-game playoff for the uh, playoffs. Uh, one, yeah, one-game playoff for the playoffs. Yeah, that's going to be spicy. The Yankees and Red Sox in a one-game play-in game. Uh, right now, it would be at Yankee Stadium. Um, I'm inclined to think that those two teams probably do end up as your AL wildcard teams. But I would love to see Toronto and or Seattle somehow find a way to jump in there. It'd just be more entertaining. I'm tired of seeing the Yankees and the Red Sox as much as I'd like to see Rizzo and Schwarber facing off, staring each other down across the field from the dugout, uh, get some, some different teams in there. Again, Toronto's got some incredible players. You've probably got the MVP runner up through no fault mm. of his own in Vladdy jr. Over there on the, the, the blue Jays I'd like to see them in the postseason I think that would be really fun and I'd like to see them make a deep run I'm just not sure it's going to work out that way mathematically which is a shame and and I also want to say one reason why I'm not super rooting for Boston is that they got permission to wear those those awful yellow uniforms yeah. in the postseason you're not and a fan of wearing, the they're wearing those the yellow uniforms. Uniforms, get them out huh? there like I, I don't need to see the Boston these these terrible hideous yellow uniforms it's not even your team colors like I you know no way get out of here not a fan of the UCLA Bruin Red no. Sox, huh? No, not a fan of that. They do look like the Bruins. They're basically wearing the same hat. What are we doing here? I wouldn't want to see the Cubs wearing those no. Wrigleyville things in, in the postseason. And those are better than, to my opinion, than those yellow whatevers <laughs> that Boston's wearing. Yellow! The Boston Red Sox are not yellow. No. The a comp I was going to make was the Savannah Bananas. That's yeah. what comes to mind when I see the all yellow jerseys. Great for an indie team, not great for a major league baseball team, especially an iconic major league baseball team. And I'm no fan of these Wrigleyville jerseys. There's nothing for me better than when the Cubs are at Wrigley Field on a Friday afternoon at sunny Wrigley Field wearing the home white uniforms with the pinstripes. That's all I need. I'm a simple fan. Give me that every single home game. The alternate jerseys and things, it just doesn't do anything for me. That One of Leonard Skinner's best songs, Simple Fan. <laughs> well, we got our jersey talking, so that's a good thing here. What I'm cheering for in the American League is just chaos. Give us as many playing games ahead of one game wild cards, ahead of what should be a very entertaining playoff run. Um, I really like, 
you, I love what's happening in Seattle. Toronto has, as you guys mentioned, an incredible young offense. And that is a ballpark that when you fill that thing up for playoff games, it is complete madness, complete, complete madness up there. So we'll see what happens there in the American League. The only thing left in the National League is who is going to win the National League West. San Francisco, who has a two-game lead right now on the Dodgers, both teams playing very good baseball. Whoever does not win the West is going to get St. Louis in a one-game playoff in that National League West ballpark. So we know what's at stake here. Just a couple games to go. Randall, do the Giants hold on or can the Dodgers get hot? Well, you know, unfortunately for the Giants, Brandon Belt has a, a, a fracture in his hand just announced yesterday. That's going to affect them no matter what the outcome. And that's a shame for them because he was having a great season. You know, I'm going to I can't claim to predict what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you what I hope happens. Mm. I'm going to tell you that I hope the Dodgers win the wild card spot. I have more faith in the Dodgers winning a one game playoff than against the Cardinals. than I do the giants, the giants have this, this aura, this feel of a team who could have a 100 plus win season. And then they'd go in there against Wainwright. He'd pitched nine innings, a shutout ball against them. And it would all come crashing down as the devil magic, two different types of devil magic clash in October. So I'm going to hope that the Dodgers are wild card one, and I'm going to hope that they live up to their potential and take care of the Cardinals. Ronan, you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of undesirable teams probably going to make the postseason. It's going to be like a lesser of two evils thing the entire way. Like you're, you're hoping the le- the less desirable of the two loses, and then you can worry about what happens in the next round. So that's what I'm rooting for here. I'm rooting for the Dodgers to take care of the Cardinals in one game, and then we can get another really spicy NLDS matchup in the Cardinals and the, I'm sorry, the Giants and the Dodgers playing in a best of For the five. Cardinals to make it to the NLDS there, Randall. Nope, nope, nope. I misspoke. Nope, nope. Anyway, uh, a Giants-Dodgers NLDS, I think, would be very contentious. I think you'd probably have the benches clear at least once. Mm-hmm. So that's my preferred outcome, is that the Giants hold on, the Dodgers are wild card one, and they handily take care of the Cardinals in a one-game playoff, and we can put that beast to red to, to bed, to red, I guess, either way, for another season. Yeah, you... I, I wow, you think the the Dodgers and the Giants get into a brawl in the postseason? I didn't uh, say brawl. I said bench is clear. Bench is, a, okay, two okay. different things. Dust, well, dust. I, actually, that's a reason to root for Toronto uh, to see them play the Rays. I think that absolutely would be incredible. Absolutely, um, go for it. I think I, I actually agree with you. I would have said similar things about. Um, the playoffs Randall in which I want the Dodgers to face the Cardinals. I want Max Scherzer, the hometown kid to shove it right back at St. Louis. Um, I want, you know, that's how I feel. I know all those Cardinals fans out there that they're, they're begging to get Clayton Kershaw. They want Clayton Kershaw because they know that they're, they think they know that, you know, they're just going to crush him in the playoffs. But uh, I, I would love to see the Dodgers go and stick it to the, um, the Cardinals. And I expect that the giants with a two game lead, with five games left, they'll probably hold on. Um, but you know, you never know. I, I, it would be fascinating if we can get some game one sixty threes out of this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Cardinals, Cardinals think they know a lot of things. It's a lot of monosyllabic thoughts and grunting uh, in what they think they know. Well, Randall, I can't think of a better segue here to what we're getting into next. Uh, I've been thinking about you. I've been very, very sad for you, Randall. I know you've been mourning the last couple of days, as it is official. Longtime Major League Baseball umpire, Country Joe West, is hanging it up. He's retiring here at the end of this 2021 season. He began his Major League career as an umpire back in 1976, more than 10 years before any of us were alive. He was in Major League Baseball. He was just 23 years old when he started as a Major League Baseball umpire. 
45 years later, he's umpired more games than any other man in the history of the world. Randall Joe West hanging it up. I know this one hurts you. Ronan, I'll I'll give this back to you in a second, and you can tell us about how you're going to miss him and you respect him. While I have the floor for a second, I'm not going to miss him one bit. I think it's important (laughs) that we not mistake longevity for effectiveness, especially in a job where there are no consequences for being as confrontational and combative and and everything that he is. You shouldn't know an umpire's name. I know you like uh, personality in your umpires. That's fine. You can have that opinion. I think if you know an umpire's name and personality, that means they've gotten entirely too much camera time. And I think Joe West is the epitome of having gotten too much camera time in his career. So, you know, I'm not going to miss him. I'm really not. I'm sorry. I'm hoping that his place in his umpiring crew is taken by somebody who is better at their job and less argumentative and less confrontational to the players. And I'm hoping I don't learn that umpire's name for a number of years to come. So uh, Country Joe, uh, have fun riding off into the sunset. We'll throw you a party or something. I will miss Joe. I like Joe. He made, he, I, I do like having personality in my umpires. I like having, you know, it's part of the game. I think it's a fun part of the game. Sometimes it's frustrating, but you know, sometimes it's not. And I think Joe, uh, you know, he made the game more lively. And, and as somebody who actually got a chance to interact with Joe, he was always nice to me. And I, I, I will, I will, you know, miss him as a part of the game. And I, and I wish we did get, but go back to kind of an era where we had some more umpires who were more lively, had some more personality, you know, had some bigger, you know, calls uh, behind the plate, you know, I, you know, Joe was in naked gun and uh, yeah. I would like a little more Enrico Palazzo in my umpires. If you, if you catch my drift. Um, so that's how I feel. I, you know, Joe got the, he broke the record at on the South side against the Cardinals. So a great game, Joe West Cardinals, White Sox, all a big celebration down there this season. Um, and I would like to see him in the playoffs, you know, let's, let's, let's get Joe out there for the world series. Um, you know, we'll see two teams fighting it out and Joe West right there. Uh, maybe he can call. He was at the Toronto Tampa Bay series. Uh, last week he ejected that kid Barucky, so maybe he can call another Toronto Tampa Bay series. So I'm I'm a little saddened that Joe's not going to be around anymore. We won't have old Joe to kick around anymore. Uh, he's gone, so I'm a little saddened by that. Yeah, you know there'd be no finer end to Joe West's career than umpiring one last World Series, which he probably will, and getting a call just egregiously wrong at the most key possible time. I don't think there'd be any better way for him to go out. He can call a pitch, a foot off the plate, a strike. And then as everybody is angry, he can just flip the crowd, the double bird. He can go fully Eli Manning. He can say, I'm out bitches. And he can go right off into the sunset. Ronan, I'll give this back to you. I know you're a a Joe West guy. Tell us how much you'll miss him. It's complicated, Randall. I I think that's what is so intriguing to me about someone like Joe West. Uh, He's a difficult guy. He's got these incredible accomplishments and longevity as an umpire is an interesting thing because his record's never going to be broken. For one thing, you don't umpire games as a major leaguer at 23 years old. That's never going to happen again. Two, you don't umpire as many games as you used to. Umpires work you know, at most like 120 games a year now. So I don't think anybody's ever going to break this record. This is going to be Joe West's forever. He's made bad calls. He's been aggressive with players. He's absolutely welcomed the spotlight onto him, but he's also done some things that you need some umpire 
to sort of represent their union. He was very involved with the mass resignation that happened about 20 years ago in the game. He's been an advocate for umpires. And I know you don't like umpires, Randall, but there's a dynamic that exists between owners, players, and umpires that's part of the game. And Joe West has been a big part of that, a controversial figure at times, but a guy too who, you know, players have all said he knows the rule book. That's one thing about Joe West. He knows the rules of the game. You don't always agree with the strike calls that he makes or ejecting pitchers for potentially throwing box or committing box on the mound. So he's a complicated figure, and I find that to be intriguing. And, and he's, an, he's an old school umpire, and I don't think that these guys are going to exist really moving forward. They're going to be more sort of in the background, which maybe that's something you want, Randall. I just find Joe West to be a fascinating character. And one thing that I noticed this year, I saw Joe West umpire three or four different games or three or three different series that are at this year. It put a smile on my face. When I walked in the ballpark, I always look at what umpires are rolling out. You see that number 22 on the board. I see 22 on the board. I see Joe West trotting out to third base and I go, oh, we're in for something tonight. Yeah. So I am going to miss Joe West. And, but it's not all sunshine. Difficult things, things about him have bothered me, but that's human nature. People are complicated. There are good and bad qualities to just about everybody. And Joe West epitomizes a lot of that in baseball. Yeah, he definitely had an ego. I mean, he's the guy who went on radio and bashed the the Red Sox and the Yankees for playing four-hour games where he might have even had a point, though, you know. Mm -hmm. Some of these games are getting a little egregiously long. But one thing I also want to know about Joe is Joe invented the West Vest, which is what you see um, a lot of umpires wear underneath their – Jack that way they didn't have to wear you know big bulky things it's a slimming thing underneath underneath their jackets underneath their shirts and it just fits nice and it's the west vest and obviously joe licensed that to wilson and they sell it but uh so he makes a little pretty penny on that as well but joe invented that and that's a big part of the game and, and with the umpires um you know changed the way they were able to their uniforms so uh he's been around for a while and he's he's had you know as you said he had his instance incidents with different players but a lot of players like him and appreciate him i mean he won some money off paul laduca when paul laduca accused him of of uh basically giving rigging calls games. for yeah. yeah rigging games for joyrides and cars and and he won uh, he won a court case but joe madden i remember when when madden was calling a game and he would he would go back at with him and have some fun with him. And you hear the press conference, you know, he talked about how he always enjoyed Joe being out there and having fun with him on the field. So I, I think he's an interesting figure in baseball. There aren't a lot of interesting figures like that anymore. A lot yeah. of these old school umpires are gone. We don't see them anymore. And we have young guys and we, we know their names and we know certain guys that have been bad at their job, but I, there's not really more colorful personalities. So that I will might miss. I think Angel Hernandez should retire too in solidarity. I think he should say, if Joe West is going to retire, I'm going to retire too. I think that would be a really, a really touching gesture on the part of Angel Hernandez. I think he should consider it. Yeah, I've got no endearing things to say about him. I don't like him. Um, I do kind of like Joe West. A uh, couple interesting moments that he's been on the field for. He worked Nolan Ryan's fifth career no-hitter. He was on the field for Willie McCovey's 500th home run. He has worked multiple World Series, All-Star Games, League Championship Series, League Division Series, a couple wild card games. He was the crew chief for the 2005 World Series. We all know how that ended, giving you some nightmares here, Randall. So, uh Hats off, Joe West, fairly well. Uh, he's still going to be around. You know he's going to keep himself in headlines. Maybe he's going to get a podcast. Podding with Ooh, Joe West. Podding with Joe. We can have him on as a guest. We can go for Joe West. You got the connection there, Jeremy. Or at one point in time, you had At a one connection. point, I did. 
but maybe um, I can, can maybe I can still use it. Get he, it uh, he is certainly a fascinating character, and it is the end of an era. That's something we can all agree on with the end of the career here of Joe West. One other Major League Baseball thing I want to touch on here, the saga of the Tampa Bay Rays, and they've made some controversial statements over the last couple of days, most recently re-rising this plan of having new open-air stadiums in Tampa, Florida, and Montreal and splitting their season as some type of hybrid Tampa-Montreal Major League Baseball team. The plan right now is to have spring training and regular season through June in Tampa Bay, spend the second half of the season in Montreal, and then alternating postseasons. And hey, let's face it, the Rays are almost consistently in the playoffs, so that's something that they are pretty effective at here. The team had made an announcement here that during the postseason, they just clinched the American League East, they were going to put up some type of advertisement or signage in Tropicana Field promoting this partnership and this future plan. Outrage filled the world. They've actually rescinded that, so that graphic is not going up. But this seems pretty ludicrous. Major League Baseball team that can't get a ballpark built in West Florida saying, you know what, not only are we going to build one ballpark, but we're going to build two ballparks, one in Florida, one in Montreal. They're both going to be open air, not like it rains in Florida or it's cold as hell in Montreal. This seems crazy, and I hate this. This is a nasty publicity stunt in my mind. It's weird. It's it, it's really weird, especially when it was weird where it first came out in like a French-language newspaper, which talked about how there would be an announcement for this after uh, some local elections in Montreal uh, later in the year, November, October. And it's, you know, we, we, they had brought this up in years past, but they talked about, but that made it seem a lot, it was, it was kind of put away, you know, pandemic last year, but that made it seem like this is a thing that might actually be happening. And it's weird. I mean, we did have that situation this year where we saw the Blue Jays start off in Dunedin, they moved to Buffalo, they moved up to Toronto. So maybe they're thinking there's precedent for this. I don't know. You know, we, in the NBA, they once had the Kansas city Omaha Kings before they became the Kansas city Kings and moved to Sacramento. Uh, you know, not this is a little different, but the Green Bay used to play games in Milwaukee all the time. But I, I just think I, I just don't understand. It's like, are you going to are the team are the front office employees? Are they going to have to move with the team from Tampa to Montreal? How is that? I mean, there's just two different countries, first of all. So, you know, that's that's it's not just, you know, a local thing. It's kind of a big deal. You'd have to have apartments in two different countries and two different cities. Um, obviously, for the players, it would be an issue. It's just it's just a weird plan. And then, you know, we can't get one baseball stadium done, but we can get two. It just it just seems very odd. And to me, it actually kind of makes me think that maybe Montreal is a real thing. Maybe that is going to actually happen. And Tampa is a goner because I don't see them. I don't think this plan will work out, but I could see them moving to Montreal. If Montreal is really willing to put up with this because the Montreal part of it seems a lot more certain than the Tampa part of it. And so I can see that happening. And, and I realize they're trying to use Montreal to get a stadium in Tampa or whatever, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's just a weird plan. Yeah. Jeremy, that's definitely my read of the situation is that the Montreal side of things uh, is a lot more uh, believes it's a lot more feasible. Now the Tampa front office, they seem to think, that this plan has as much momentum now as it has ever. But like you said, I just don't see how that works with people. This isn't a video game. You can't just press a button and enter a code and move a, move a team. Ronan, I don't know. I know. I don't know much about out of the park. Can you move teams? Can you relocate teams in your sim? Okay. So this, and just to add one other point, you can 
basically have the game have a natural expansion or relocation. So it isn't uncommon. You get into, let's say, I don't know, 2022, 2023, and Miami moves or Tampa Bay moves, and suddenly you got a team in like Columbus or Nashville or whatever city. So yeah, the evolution of the league is absolutely part of the game. Yeah, I I just don't understand how this works on a a human standpoint. You'd be asking the players to keep two in-season residences, one in Tampa, one in Montreal. And even if you were to like, I don't know, buy out or have your players all live in one really nice hotel, that's minor league stuff. You can't have all your players living in a hotel for all of their home dates. You know, these are, these are grown people with families. They need homes, uh, nice apartments or houses, whatever. So you're asking them to keep two residences. You're asking families to potentially move halfway through the season. I just don't see how this works from a a personal standpoint, from a a standpoint of these are human beings. They're not just video game people. And that gets into nothing about building not one, but two stadiums. So Jeremy, that's my read of it, that Montreal is a lot more open to this happening than Tampa is. And at some point, the thing about using all these other cities for leverage is at some point, some city is going to call your bluff. If you, if the Rays keep telling Tampa, look, we've got Montreal willing to plop down whatever Montreal uses for money. I don't know if it's uh, croissants or whatever, but they're willing to prop down a hundred million croissants and build an open air stadium up there. Um, and at some point Tampa is going to say, okay, fine, leave. We can't give you that. And at some point they're going to have to make a decision. I just don't see how this works, but it would be interesting to see the Tampa Bay Rays relocate and become yeah. a new iteration of the Montreal Expos, probably playing in the AL East. Um, so that would be interesting. I would be a lot more interested in seeing that happen. And I'm sorry for the 10 Rays fans out there that I'm taking your team away from you. I'd be a lot more interested in seeing that happen than I would in this kind of half and half plan. I, I just don't see how there's any feasibility to it. Yeah, for me, I, I think I would be more on the front office people side just because I just think I just don't understand how that would work for people that would work like having to move because I feel like for baseball players, a lot of them don't live with their families during the season. A lot of their families are in different places, especially foreign mm-hmm. players, obviously. Um, and they're always on the move during the season. They're always going around, you know, trades they are ending up with different teams. So they are living in hotels often. Um, you know, I, obviously it would be a hardship. It wouldn't, I'm not trying to ease it, but for like people that like what you like, you're planning, you're just working in the front office operations, selling tickets, anything. And you're planning, are, are there, is that a full-time job now? Like, or are they hiring a new person in Montreal that takes your job from you when you go up there? Do you have to move? Do you have to plan for living in two different cities in one year? Cause like how many places are you getting a six month lease on a place? Like right. it's ridiculous. And then you're, it would be a big hard, you know, you're filing tax returns in two different countries, obviously. So like, I, it just doesn't seem feasible to me. And one of the weird things I remember when it first came up was they talked about how, well, Tampa has like the strong history of spring training baseball. So that's why Tampa, we would start the season in Tampa because we're so used to, you know, people are calling out to games in, in March and February and, and they'll, so they'll come out in April and May and then we can switch them over to, you know, Montreal. I, I, it was just such a weird yeah. logic that I, I remember when they first came out with it. But th- and now that they're back to pushing this is kind of crazy to me. It's an obvious grift. That's the thing that stands out to me. This is not going to happen. There's not going to be a major league baseball team splitting half the year in Montreal and the other half of the year in St. Petersburg or Tampa or somewhere down there in Tampa Bay. And that's why this is such nonsense, but it exposes really a bigger problem. Um, Major league baseball is at a point where the sport is ready to expand. And there's a lot of interest in expanding the sport. Uh, One, the owners we know want extra teams in the playoffs. 
fans don't want to have a playoffs like the NBA where, God, you're under 500 and you're routinely making the playoffs depending on the conference that you're in. So one of the things that you can level that out a little bit is putting teams in two more cities. The other thing is that there are clearly feasible cities in North America that could support a major league baseball team. We've talked about Charlotte. We talked about Nashville. Montreal with a ballpark would work. Portland could work. Austin could be an interesting type place. There's lots of cities that you could pick at and say, hey, maybe you could put a major league baseball team in there. So major league baseball needs to figure out here. One, what are we doing with Oakland? What are we doing with Tampa Bay? My hope is they can get a ballpark in Oakland. They can figure it out there. I think it's very good for baseball. They have two teams in the Bay, a nice regional rivalry there. Not, not a regional rivalry, but two teams that play each other, don't necessarily like each other, but are close to each other in Oakland and San Francisco. And you get the National and American League in one market. I think that's a very good thing for the sport. Tampa Bay, you got to open a ballpark in Tampa or you have to move that team permanently. It's not going to work in St. Petersburg. The only way that they're going to get fans at a ballpark down there is if that ballpark is in Tampa. And if they can't figure it out, there are more than enough cities that can support a major league baseball team. And it's time to get them out of there. There's another other city that I don't think is best for supporting major league baseball. And that's Phoenix, but it's a rapidly growing city spring trainings down there. They're going to try to continue to make that work. But I think this is, this is the end of the line here for Tampa Bay, get a ballpark in Tampa or leave because this is not good for baseball. This, this franchise, even though they win games and they go to the playoffs is a complete and utter joke and they're not building baseball in Florida. So if you're not contributing to the broader game, go to a city that will support it. I think Nashville would be an awesome baseball city. They would tie in with local rivals there in Cincinnati and Cleveland, Chicago, St. Louis. I would love to see that happen. And I think that's happening in the next decade or so. This has to come to an end in Tampa Bay because it's it's a complete embarrassment to the sport. Well, they're two um similar. They're kind of you know two similar teams right there in Oakland and Tampa. You have two of the cheapest owners. You have two uh actually very smart front offices in terms of putting a product sure. on the field, uh, competitive product. But they they flip their player. They're always looking to win. But you know they're smart in that they flip their players. So they, so I do understand what you're saying in in terms of they don't they aren't really building fans because I mean Oakland obviously has a long tradition of fans out there. But they aren't building fans because you know a player on a on Tampa could be traded any instant yeah. for somebody new because they're not going to resign anybody long term. They're not planning on keeping somebody. So your Blake Snell's, your Tommy Fams, whatever they trade them all out and then they win those trades more often than not. They make great trades and those teams are still back in the play. Playoffs, but there's no connection there from a fan to like a player. If everybody's gone, it's hard to actually like sit there and root for guys. You know, you can't really build that. So it's difficult. And what you said about St. Petersburg is exactly right. You know, you have to build a stadium where the people are a uh, Tropicana field was built in the eighties. Like Tropicana field was built to try to lure the white Sox and the San Francisco giants to come down there. That That's a long time ago. And then they had, it also the Tampa Bay lightning, you know, it wasn't built for modern day baseball. Um, and it wasn't built for how it is now. So you have to build a stadium where the people are in Tampa for it to work. And I agree with you that they're majorly based on wants expansion. They yeah. want it and they want it as soon as possible, but they have to get Tampa sorted out. They have to get Oakland sorted out. And part of the reason why they're talking about this with Montreal is because they don't want, you know, a Tampa moving to one of those other cities, stealing a possible expansion site, because yeah. those are the ones that are going to bring in the money. They want the big money from a new expansion team because MLB owners will make a ton of money from whatever that's yeah. like $800 million expansion fee, or I'm just pulling a number out, but it's going to be a huge number to get a team in Nashville, say, then opposed to Tampa just moves to Nashville. I mean, it's obviously better for Tampa, but it's not better for major league baseball as a whole. Uh, the owners, 
Um, so they're gonna they're, they don't want them to take a city away from them that they can expand. So I could see them moving to like a Montreal. Um, but yeah, it, these are two owners, Stu Sternberg, Lewis Wolf, that are kind of cheap. They have money. They can. I mean, Stu yep. Sternberg is a basically a P guy from. Uh, you know, uh, New York and he has all wall street guys and that's why they're so good, but the, that's all they do. They just strip the team and they, they compete, but they strip the team every year. They build it on bare bones. That's a big, every team could spend more. There's no team in that can't spend in major league baseball. They're competitive. Yes. And it's great to see how they're competitive, but they're not a team that's ever looking to spend. And it's, that's frustrating. It's another team I'm not rooting for in the postseason. Simply I am though. because <laughs> I don't want ownership to be rewarded for the way that they operate because you're right. They are efficient, but they're soulless. They're cold and fandom isn't built on that. So I don't like what's happening down there. And um, I, I would say 1998 was the last time that we saw expansion in major league baseball. We got Randall's team, the Arizona diamondbacks down in Phoenix. We got the Tampa Bay Rays in St. Petersburg. We are not going to get to the 30 30th anniversary of those teams here without major league baseball having two more teams added to it and ballparks figured out for both of these teams. So we're going to see significant change. I think in the landscape of major league baseball within the next six to 10 years. And these two teams are right at the forefront of it. Once those dominoes fall with Oakland and Tampa Bay, everything else gets going and we're going to see drastic change in the next six, 10 years here in the majors. I'd, I'd like to say something to my past self, Ronan. It's funny. You were doing your bit as you always do. You are a bit man. Randall's team in 1998, uh, young me was actually excited about more expansion teams mm -hmm. in MLB. I don't know why, but that was right around the time that the NFL, the NBA, the NHL and MLB, they all added a varying number of expansion teams. And for whatever reason, as a, a youth, I thought that was kind of neat. I thought it was neat to see a new team, a new color scheme, new logo being added to these existing leagues. And I wonder what 1998 Randall would say to 2007 Randall and vice versa if he knew uh, what was coming. Yeah. So I, there's a lesson there is never be excited about anything because nine years later, they may beat your team and uh, make you really, really unhappy. Well, you got me thinking, Randall, and you know, I'm not the hockey guy in this pod. Jeremy's the partial season ticket holder for the Blackhawks. Randall, you've been loyal to that team here, certainly through their run over the last decade. But I noticed something the other day. So we got a new team in the hockey league, the Seattle Kraken, cool name, wonderful sweater, the logo, the color scheme, all of it's awesome. It's great. They don't yet have the arena open in Seattle, but they're moving there. They did, though, have an exhibition game in Spokane. So quite a bit of a distance from Seattle, but still up there in the Pacific Northwest. That crowd was fantastic for that game the other night. And we're talking exhibition game at this point. So I think what I expect to see in Seattle this year in the NHL, loud fans, a cool logo, a neat looking arena that's been renovated here over the last couple of years. I'm excited for that new excitement coming into Major League Baseball. And I think there is room for two more teams. So if we see a 35,000 seat park in Portland or Nashville or Charlotte in the next decade here, that's going to be fun for the sport. And it's going to be nice to see maybe new rivalries pop up for the Cubs. Yeah. Climate Pledge Arena, which I can't say without laughing. Climate Pledge Arena. You know, we all remember when it was Key Arena and it was the home of the, uh, the Supersonics. Of course, yeah. it's been renovated extensively. I was fortunate enough to visit Seattle almost a decade ago now, which is insane. Uh, great city. There's a, a great history of uh, junior hockey in the region. The Seattle Thunderbirds, a great team with a great logo. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting 
to see the Seattle Kraken be be birthed into existence. See a, a Kraken literally birthed out of what I guess is a larger Kraken like that. But yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, you're, and now the NHL is up to 32 teams after adding the Golden Knights some years ago. So that's interesting. The process of expansion and the process of naming a team and coloring it and introducing a logo and jerseys or sweaters in hockey, that, that's interesting. And, you know, that's interesting right up until that expansion team beats my team. And I go, okay, never mind. I'm done with this. Take them back. I think Randall was just a really big fan of teal, which is why he was so excited about all those. You know, it was the color. It was the color of expansion in the 1990s. If you were an expansion team, there's a good chance you were teal to some degree. You had the Panthers in the NHL. You had the Grizzlies in the NBA. Uh, I don't think there was any teal in the NHL expansion. You had piss oh, yellow for the, you had the San Predators. Jose Sharks. You had tons but, of teams. Yeah, that, that was, but that were an earlier expansion team. That's what, what late uh, late 80s? No, it's Sharks? like 1992. Okay, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, whatever. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking more of the Predators, the Blue Jackets, the Wild. And there's one other team in that in that group whom I'm forgetting. Is it the Thrashers? That's right, the Thrashers. So those four teams all came into existence right around the same time. Um, but no teal, no teal in there, but you I did mean, have Charlotte the teal Hornets wearing all right. those colors, right? You had the, the, the Jaguars, the teal Grizzlies, the teal Jaguars, the teal Panthers, the teal Diamondbacks. There was a lot of teal and of course, teal and purple for the Marlins we, that we all know how Randall felt about them. Yeah. Well, no, I was no 1993. Me had no opinion on the Florida Marlins. I, I would have been Colorado Rockies had would have been purple six, and silver six years and old black, but yeah, you know, we, we don't need to tell uh, this podcast about purple for the Colorado Rockies, but yeah, purple and teal were the colors of expansion. They were. So yeah, they were. So, you know, we have the, the teal Kraken coming into existence now. And you know, that, that will be from an aesthetic standpoint for me as someone who deals regularly in jerseys. If we do get expansion teams, how do they design? And this is something we, you and I, and we all three of us were discussing last night, the number of teams in MLB who use some combination of red and blue, we yeah. determined it was a third of the league nearly who use. And there'll be two more after expansion. That's right. Two more. One team will be blue and red. One team will be red and blue. So, you know, that's that's my interest in expansion, not necessarily the demographic stuff, not necessarily the geographic, the financial is how how would two expansion teams be designed? That would be yeah. the interesting part for me. The Nashville yeah, country Americans. Well, right. it could change everything. How many teams are in each league? How many divisions are in each league? Playoff expansion is something the owners certainly want. The thing about extra teams is that means more jobs for players. So as long as you can work out the financials, this is something that benefits owners. It benefits players. It grows the game. And it costs franchises a lot of money, to your point, Jeremy, to join Major League Baseball. And that's money that goes to Tom Ricketts and old Dickie Monfort and Jerry Reinsdorf. I do want to go on the record as saying that if there is a Major League Baseball team put in Nashville, I really want that team in the National League. I think there's a lot of local fit there. How fun will it be to take that weekend road trip to Nashville for a weekend series the Cubs playing against? I don't know, the Major League Nashville sounds. You got close proximity to Cincinnati. You got close proximity uh, to Pittsburgh. You got close proximity to Atlanta. So I think that's a team that could just plop right in there and have some regional fans coming in there. Nashville is a hot city too. A lot of people move in there, population growing and a very fun city. Even mm -hmm. if you're not a country music fan, Nashville is a very, very good time. And from Chicago, it's a reasonable drive. So you can get down there and see some games. So I want to see that happen. Other things just off the top of my head that I I've think- I've done that drive. Yeah, totally. Um, that we're going to see over the next decade or so. 
I think we're going to see a new ballpark or severe renovations in Phoenix, if not a relocation of that franchise. They're talking about a new ballpark or a renovated ballpark up in Toronto. That's something that we're going to see. I also think the Sox are going to have a new ballpark in the next decade. New ownership coming to the South Side, a new ballpark, I think will be one of their first priorities. And I think they're going to keep them on the South Side, but there's some interesting things there. Um, lastly, Randall, before we get into the 2001 Cubs, are there any cities that I haven't mentioned that pop in your head as, hey, that could be a good spot for the majors other than Arlington Heights? Well, nothing can top Arlington Heights. Like, I can't wait till the expansion Arlington Heights hoofbeats play their first game um, way out there on Euclid Avenue, Euclid Avenue. Um, you know, one, one city I remember being tossed around and, you know, feasibility, I think would be a big question here, Mexico City. Putting oh. another team outside of the United States, putting a team in Mexico City, um, I think that would be very interesting from a city and from a cultural standpoint. You talk about how Nashville, how there's so much culture there. Mexico City, you don't get a whole lot more uh, differing culture than that. And of course, you have uh, a great history of MLB players being born in Mexico. I think that would be really interesting. I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Mexico City is at altitude, maybe not to the extent that uh, Denver is. Higher. Higher. Okay. Over 7,000 feet. That's, That's why they put all the IOC in, in Colorado, because when they had the Olympics in Mexico, none of the guys could run. They're like, we need to train up at high heights. Okay. So uh, altitude would be an even bigger issue there. But I think that would be interesting from a, from a city standpoint. I think you'd have a lot of fun designing a brand identity, uh, jerseys and a color and a logo for a team based in Mexico City. I think that would be a really interesting project for MLB's design people and Nike. So I don't know about feasibility necessarily, um, but I think that would be really interesting. Mexico City. Well, for Mexico, I, I, from what I remember and can recall, I think uh, Monterey was always the more likely um, city because Monterey, first of all, they I know they probably played games uh, in Mexico City, but I know they played a lot of games in Monterey. Uh, which where Major League Baseball has. I still remember, I think the Rockies playing a game down there with Vinny Castillo, who was a Mexican player that uh, Randall alluded to. Um, because one, Monterey is more of a uh, Americanized city. Um, as one, it has a lot of Fortune 500 companies down there. Uh, a lot of more, it's just, as opposed to uh, Mexico City, which is obviously, as Randall mentioned, the culture, it's a lot more, you know, Mexican. Whereas in Monterey, Mexico, it, it just fits a little bit better with uh how MLB is, but I think if they do expansion and I wanted to bring this up before we talk about things changing is if you put a team in each league, you go back to 16, 16. Now we could talk about not doing interleague play every single game. We could go back to like, not, I mean, there'll always be interleague play, but let's make it a special thing. Let's not make it every single day. In my opinion, good chance you end up like the, the NFL you have, two conferences, two leagues, and four divisions of four teams each. You could end up with a, a North division, a South division, an East division, and a West division in uh, both the National League and the American League. That would be drastic realignment. Um, you know, we're all still young enough to remember going from two divisions to three divisions. We could potentially see ex expansion to four divisions uh, in MLB. So that that's kind of a, not unspoken, but a, a consequence of expanding to 32 teams in MLB. It's going to be fun to see where this goes, though. Other cities may get be given a look, like Vancouver could maybe get a look. It just feels to me like the South needs another team. Um, when you're talking about the South, you got a team in Atlanta, the biggest city in the South. 
Florida's its own thing. Texas is its own thing. The rest of the Southern United States doesn't have a team. You've got Washington, D.C. So the city that pops out then is Charlotte in North Carolina. It's a big city. It's a rapidly growing city. So that's a place you could put it. I don't think anything in South Carolina would work. I don't think the Raleigh-Durham era can support a Major League Baseball team. Charlotte, they've already got a wonderful AAA ballpark there, the White Sox AAA affiliate. So it seems that the South will get another team. Maybe Nashville satisfies that. And the West seems like they could get another team. Portland certainly comes to mind. So we'll talk about this. We'll see where this goes. Uh, Behind the yellow line, 350 will be introducing a new Major League Baseball team and talking about uh, who will be the first player on that team that will get a horse shit out of Randall. And uh, we'll see who it is at that point in time. Um, I want to go back in time, though, 2001 Chicago Cubs. This is the last time we're going to revisit this team formally. This is something we've been doing over the last couple of weeks. We've talked about Sammy's miraculous year. We've highlighted some specific games or moments. Ricky Gutierrez falling down against the Rockies, getting that walk-off run scored. The grand slam that uh, Ricky Gutierrez hit against the Chicago White Sox. We talked about Courtney Dunking giving up a grand slam to Carlos Lee. Last week, we talked about the pitching staff. Today, a little bit of a smorgasbord, Randall, just some little bits and pieces over the course of the season that I wanted to share with everybody. Um, So let's start in March. I know we talked about this before, but some of the bizarre things that happened with the 2001 Cubs, again, March 26, 2001, Julian Tavares in spring training, dropkick San Francisco Giants third baseman, Russ Davis. He gets suspended for five games. He appealed it. He appealed it. He appealed it. He lost it served a five-game suspension. Davis suspended for three. He got that cut down to two. So a weird start to the season for the Cubs in 2001 with one of your starting pitchers drop King King an opponent during a spring training game. On the night of May 19th, in the midst of the Cubs' eight-game losing streak, Julio Zuleta couldn't sleep, was tossing and turning all night. He gets this idea that I need to get the offense going. I need to help the Cubs win some ball games. So he gets to the ballpark early the next day at Wrigley. He grabs the bats of all the players in the starting lineup. He shoves them into the fencing on the front of the dugout. So half the bats in the dugout, half the bat is out over the field. He takes a pile of newspapers. Randall may come as no surprise to you. Both Paul Sullivan and Skip Bayless worked for the Chicago Tribune in 2001. He takes a barrel of newspapers. He lights them on fire. He drops ashes on the bats. He then goes and gets various fruits and vegetables. He rubbed oranges, apples, bananas, sunflower seeds, and Flexol on the bats. What do the Cubs do, Randall? They win 12 consecutive games, becoming the first team since the 1965 Pirates to win 12 games after losing eight. This is straight out of Major League. Player in the dugout, lighting things on fire, and now you get a big winning streak. Uh, Bats are afraid. Joe will come. Uh, you know, uh, Julio Zuleta ahead of his time. I've suggested that Skip Bayless be lit on fire a few times. My God. <laughs> wow. Who was the Cubs beat writer there? Was it Sullivan or was it Teddy Greenstein era? Both. Yeah, absolutely. Both, Both okay. were on the beat then. Because yeah. I remember Teddy Greenstein being on the beat back around then too. And Skip Bayless, man, he had a thing for Sammy Sosa. Absolutely. Um, I didn't like Skip Bayless. I still nope. don't like Skip Bayless. His, his, name is, his name is Skip because you're supposed to skip over his work. It, it's Rick Bayless, all right. His name is a sentence, Skip Bayless. Just imagine 2001 Randall picking up a Chicago Tribune, which he was featured in, grabbing that sports section and seeing Skip Bayless and Paul Sullivan front and center with Sammy hitting 64 home runs and all that stuff. Immediately relegated to gift wrapping. Or lighting on fire. and Or lighting on fire in the dugout, exactly. That's for bats. 
Julio Zaleta got a talking to, like you can't be lighting things on fire in the dugout. That's not going to work. But I love this quote from Zuleta to the Chicago media. Direct quote. I thought the bats were hungry, so I gave them some fruit. I put them in the sun so we would get hot. Randall, the Cubs win 12 in a row. Julio Zuleta was on it. The 2021 Cubs needed some Julio Zuleta. It's very bad to steal Joe Boo's rum. Very bad. Uh, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great quote. Feeding the bats and putting them in the sun so they'll get hot. You, you want personality in the game. Forget the umpires. More of that. We don't need personality from the umpires. I am all for bat-related antics in the dugout. Plenty more of that. Plenty more of that, please. A couple more minutes. Fire hazard. <laughs> revisit here from the 2001 Chicago Cubs. The 2001 All-Star Game was at Safeco Field in Seattle, talking about the Mariners. Uh, it was the final All-Star Game for Tony Gwynn. The MVP of that was Cal Ripken Jr. in his 19th and final All-Star Game. Two Cubs made the All-Star Game that year, despite having the best record in the National League at the All-Star break. Sammy Sosa, who was the starting cleanup hitter and right fielder in that game. John Lieber, the other starter for the Cubs. Sammy also in the home run derby, he finished runner-up. He fell to former Cub Luis Gonzalez, 6-2 in the finals. Magical year for him in the Diamondbacks. He'd get the game-winning hit in Game 7 of the World Series. But Sammy put on a show, got to the finals. I was surprised, though, reflecting on that, that only two Cubs made the All-Star team, especially considering that they had a very, very good first half of the season. I remember John Lieber uh, making the team that year because I remember him facing uh, Maglio Ordonez. Uh, I believe he faced in the game. And I, and if I recall, I, I think Maglio took him deep uh, to dead center. Uh, and I actually think John Lieber gave up two home runs. I think he went and gave up back-to-back homers in the all-star game, one from Maglio. And if I'm looking it up, yeah, I think that is actually correct that he did give up back-to-back home runs. Uh, I'm trying to remember a uh, Jeter, Derek Jeter. So he gave up a homer to Derek and he, then Maglio took him deep to dead center. Uh, you know, it's okay because Chris Bryant got Chris Sale back uh, about 15 years later, so all is good. But uh, yeah, I, I remember watching that and thinking, "Oh boy, uh, that's not going to be a good one." Where or John Lieber got taken deep twice. Jeremy, you mentioned last time when we were talking about pitchers that Joe Borowski made one start for the Cubs. It came on August 11th against San Francisco at Wrigley Field. He threw a scoreless first. You're thinking, "All right, Borowski, we got a guy here in the rotation." Second inning. Six runs all earned, including a three-run home run to Barry Bonds. Borowski would go just one and two-thirds innings, allowing six earned runs. We wouldn't see him again in 2001. He'd become a staple in the bullpen in 2002, 2.73 ERA that year. And then in 2003, he saved 33 games for the Cubs in their National League Central Division titles. So we got a taste of Joe Borowski, a little appetizer before the good thing came in 2002 and 2003. Uh, Another debut for the Cubs in 2001, Carlos Sembrano made his Major League debut, a ball game I was at. It was game two of a doubleheader against Milwaukee Brewers at Wrigley Field. That came on August 20th. The Cubs won the first game. They dropped the second game in Sembrano's first start. He'd make one start the rest of the year, four relief outings, and then become one of the best pitchers for the Cubs over the next decade. Many, many great seasons for the Cubs and a ton of strikeouts with Big Z. Also a ton of offense. That was a Cubs pitcher who could hit. And we talk about Otani being a two-way player. Carlos Zambrano had some nights where he was knocking the ball out of the ballpark and pitching some lights out ball. The one other moment that I want to highlight from 2001, the final game of the season, the Cubs were eliminated from postseason play at Wrigley Field. 
Sammy Sosa hits his 64th and final home run on the last day of the season, a 4-3 loss to Pittsburgh in front of 35,000 at Wrigley Field. So spring training starts with your pitcher drop kicking a San Francisco Giant. It ends with Sammy hitting his 64th home run, becoming the only player in Major League history to have three 60 home run seasons, a memorable year. Not a playoff year for the Cubs, but I will continue to look back fondly on the 2001 squad. And if I recall, Sammy kind of had a monster second half, I feel like. Yes. I feel like Luis Gonzalez was ahead of him. It was always like Bonds, Gonzalez, Bonds, Gonzalez. And then Sammy just passed up Luis Gonzalez and uh, finished second in the in the race. And as you mentioned, three times over 60 home runs. None of those seasons did he lead the league in hitting home runs. Crazy. Absolutely insane. Run. Rona, I know the 2001 Cubs are near and dear to your heart, and we appreciate you putting these segments together uh, the last month and a half or so. I personally can't wait until 2024 when we are doing Behind the Yellow Line episodes uh, in the hundreds, and we can look back just as lovingly on the 2004 Chicago Cubs, mm. the, the ballad of the 2004 Chicago Cubs, arguing with broadcasters uh, and everything else that went right with that team. Incredibly right. You're not excited for the ballad of the 2002 Chicago Cubs? Oh, God. <laughs> the, the ballad of the 2002 Chicago Cubs sank right after it left the station, Jeremy. Hey, 90 wins into a playoff spot, a division winner. Well, 90 losses, we, excuse me, 90 into a playoff spot. I was going to say, we're going to have some fond things to talk about about the 2003 Chicago Cubs. Um, but 2001, it was a season that didn't end with a playoff appearance, but so many memorable names and moments. And I get so happy when Marquis gives us a throwback from 01. The other thing about 2001 is Wrigley was immaculate. It was sort of the end of... Wrigley Field before advertising creeped in everywhere. You didn't have the bleacher expansion. You didn't have video boards. You had the shrubs and greenery and center field. It was sort of the end of Wrigley's innocence, maybe is one way of thinking about it. The lights were in there. So some fans in the 80s will say, hey, things changed when those lights went into the ballpark. But for me, there was a distinct change there. The Cubs made the NLCS in 2003 and Wrigley Field has really never been the same since then. So when I look back on 2001, it just feels like a simpler time. And it was, man, 20 years ago at this point. Um, the ballpark just looks lighter. Sammy looks heavier. It's something that I will very, very fondly remember. And the other thing with that is we were 14. We were finishing eighth grade. We were going into high school. That is a monumental year for young boys or, or young boys that are becoming men. So all of that ties into it. You are finding yourself as a young adult. You're getting a little bit more freedom. And the Cubs had a pretty fun team there. Very, very fun until August and September. Very, very fun. And unfortunately, we all know how September went. Some things yeah. not in their control. Uh, but yeah, you're mentioning the ballpark, you know, that when they put up the fencing and in the bleachers and but that's about the time you know they built that restaurant in center field they start mm -hmm. putting up the the those little scoreboard or little video boards underneath the um the overhangs the roof of the building excuse me the underneath the roof and it's kind of funny to think about how kind of the outrage there was over those little boards back then 14 um, year old ronin pissed yeah. and now those things are so small nobody would even notice nobody would even notice oh. them in the ballpark because there's yeah. so much else going on it's uh, amazing how quickly the technology changed in ballparks. And this is something I was talking about in class the other day, too. If you remember, before teams were investing in Wi-Fi and better cell service, when you went to a ballpark or a stadium or a concert venue, your phone was done. Oh, yeah. And major league teams were 
very, very aware of the fact that we need to improve this infrastructure. And look what that led to. You can't even get tickets anymore unless they are on your phone. You're sitting in your seat and the team is asking you, begging you to place bets on what's happening on the field. In 20 years, the ballpark ballpark experience has significantly changed. And a big part of it is smartphones and technology and Wi-Fi. I just think back to like 2004, Wrigley Field, you try to text your buddy to meet up somewhere. You couldn't get anything out in that ballpark in terms of text messages. What year, I think it was a little bit later in the decade, but what year was the year where they tried the wireless bullpen phones that were just oh, a complete God. mess. <laughs> they were the, what, the like the next tell, try to talk. That felt and, like Pinella time. Yeah, it feels like, too, I was going to say, I think it might have been 07, 08-ish, but that was just a complete mess. They couldn't get sick, they couldn't get whatever. <laughs> and then they're like, we have to go back to the, you know, landline phones built into the wall. <laughs> like, we, we don't need, I think Randall might have it. Uh, you know, I it, a little later than Pinella time, it was 2013. They tried wow. that late. Yeah, it was that late. I'm surprised too, reading or listening to you and then Googling it. But no, everything about wireless bullpen phones is coming up from ahead of the 2013 season. Hmm. Wow. I know. Under, it seems like it, was, Theo? it seems like it was longer ago than that, doesn't it? Yeah, wow. we'll have to look into that. Yeah, Ronan, Ronan you, mentioned, you mentioned the technology growing. Uh, something you didn't mention, no more paper all-star ballots. At yeah. the ballpark. You yeah. used to be able to vote right there. Now they encourage you to not encourage you're required to do it entirely on your phone or on your desktop computer. You used to be able to just go to the ballpark, grab a, a golf pencil, fill out your, your all-star ballot and, and drop that in a box. So you, that's gone too. It's all digital now. And, you know, cashless ballparks too, even yep. vendors walking around, not taking cash and teams are saying, oh, this is a COVID thing. It's got way more to do than just COVID. And I don't think that this is something that's going to be going back. It's good for the teams to get all your credit card info and to make sure that you're making those types of transactions instead of cash, which, you know, vendors throw a couple dollars in their pocket, different things like that. So that's a drastic change that 20 years ago, you never would have thought that would be a thing. Now it's hard to imagine it's ever going to go back to the way it was before. Yeah, I, I got it. Uh, it's 2006, Randall. Uh, I got a whole bunch of articles here about the Cubs and Motorola going wireless for bullpen phones in cool. all from June of 2006, which seems to line up a little bit better. Yeah. It's actually Dustin Baker era, uh, although he got fired pretty soon from that. Yeah. Um, all with my memory, because I just uh, that that's pretty crazy. Maybe they tried it again in 2013. And OK, work. yeah, it was a league wide thing beginning in 2013. But you are, of course, correct. The Cubs and Motorola tried it at Wrigley in 2006. Yeah, and it was it didn't work. It's functional. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Ronan, you mentioned the cashless vendors. It's incredibly weird to be at Wrigley and you see the the, the old style vendors and the hot dog vendors swiping credit cards right there instead of just taking you know, $10 for a beer and the client, you know, clientele nice enough to say, keep $2 for yourself. It's incredibly weird yeah. walking around with the scanners and they just swipe your credit card right there. It's a, it's a different world out there. And yeah, another I, 10 I, years and it'll be drones and robots and droids bringing it to your seat instead of actually humans. I, I do everything pretty much on my phone nowadays. It's pretty crazy. I mean, if I don't have my phone on me, I'd probably lose everything. Cause it's basically my wallet, everything, you know, tickets, credit card paying for everything. Like I go somewhere, I just, you know, the phone, that's it pretty much. You, and so it's nuts. You got your Vax card on the phone. Well, I have a picture of it. Uh, okay. Unfortunately in Illinois, we don't really have, you know, any sort of, I mean, right now there's really no Vax mandates. It will be interesting because I'm going to UC pretty soon how that will work. Obviously we'll take my card there. Um, so we don't really have anything, any sort of mobile Vax card here. 
but uh, yeah, I do have it on a picture of it on my phone. I was at an indoor concert the other day here in Denver and I got up to the, it was at a barbecue joint. So it wasn't like a big music venue or anything, but I got up to the door and the guy's like, Hey, need your Vax card. And I was like, ah, crap, I didn't bring it. And I'm thinking, well, I know I have a photo of it on my phone. Unfortunately, they took it. I appreciated that the venue was looking into that um, and get a picture on your phone. That's one of the easiest things that you can do to protect yourself here. Um, one more thing to talk about here before we break, we've been ending these shows talking about the Chicago bears that was about as embarrassing of a Chicago Bears game I've ever seen in my life. That may have been the worst performance I've ever seen from the Chicago Bears this past weekend in Cleveland, just stomped on by the Browns. One passing yard for the Chicago Bears offense, just a completely lifeless effort from the offense and a real deflating one because we know Justin Fields is a talented quarterback. He made some mistakes. The offensive line was terrible. The play calling was atrocious. Absolute nightmare, though, Sunday for the Bears. Uh, Jeremy, can you... Think of a game off the top of your head that burns more or was more embarrassing than what we saw here this past weekend. Well, there have been a lot of bad bears uh, <laughs> offenses over the years. A lot of bad bears quarterbacks. I could think of a lot of bad games. I, I could think sure. of watching. Obviously the excitement level of this game was kind of built a little bit with Justin Fields starting personally. If you look back to last week, I was the dour one on the show. You guys thought uh, just Fields can go out there and dazzle everybody. I, I, I was a little I was a little scared of, of Cleveland's uh, defensive line. I thought they would have a nice field day. And unfortunately, Fields Day, I guess I should say. Unfortunately, they did because they, they knocked Justin Fields all over the field. And at some point, I was, I was rooting to get him out of there. I was like, put Foles in. I don't want to see this kid killed. I don't want to see his development down. I mean, we see why Andy Dalton probably might be the right guy for the time period for to be out there. Because like, if he's just going to be out there and, you know, one, two – seconds he's got a guy in his face he's getting hit everywhere he can't even you know plant his foot and make a throw and they didn't really do any play calling to really adjust to that um it's tough i mean you got a 40 year old dude out there and jason peters who was fishing and then they just call him back in because their draft pick that they traded up to get isn't playing this season uh because he's a bad back which is why other teams you know moved off of him uh, and he just was a turnstile. He just was a revolving door. Just letting uh, Miles Garrett come through, come through and hit my quarterback, come through and hit my quarterback. So like, you know, Justin Fields had to have an MRI in his hand this week. So I, to me, if it's like, if Dalton's healthy, I would just put it back out there. I, 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 I'm okay. Not seeing fields for a while. Just atrocious, atrocious play calling. You wonder what quarterback Nagy thought he was running out there. no, no effort to play to Justin Fields' strength, his athleticism, his ability to run, get out of the pocket. It was, it was awful. It was that easily, if you combine the expectations with the reality, one of the worst games we've seen in quite a while. And we've seen some rough games the last few seasons. And there's, there's nowhere to go but up. I guess that's the optimistic thing. It can only get better from here. Hey, you know what helps with that, too? Playing the Detroit Lions yep. at home at Soldier Field. Jeremy. Absolutely. Win loss Sunday. What happens with the Bears? Bears gonna win. I have I have high hopes. I I'm excited. You know Jared Goff out there for the first time for the Detroit Lions. Not seeing Matt Stafford in a Detroit Lions uniform. I think the Bears. You know they'll, they'll play better at home. I think the same thing. Kind of similar about L.A. coming back home, able to face the Cincinnati Bengals. Do it like I mentioned last week. I think every other game this year. So it's or you know home road, home road, home run. So after every, you know, road game, we're always going to be coming back home. So I think, I think we'll get back up. I think we'll, we'll win this one. And so I like it. I, 
I've had good success when I've been out and seen the Detroit Lions at uh, um, Soldier Field. Unfortunately, you know, my our friend Greg probably wouldn't be excited about that, but I, I've always seen the Lions lose. Randall? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping for a win this week, too. I'm sure we'll find out who's starting, whether it's Dalton coming off his knee injury, whether it's Fields coming off a hand injury. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be Foles. Uh, I, I don't think that was ever really on the table. What I really need to see is I need to see Nagy give up play calling. Let somebody else do it, please. I'm begging. Let somebody else call the plays and see if it gets any better. You you can't keep letting Nagy go out there and and letting this happen. I know you want them to win, Randall, but I need a prediction here. Will they win this weekend? Yes, they will win. They will win this weekend. I'm with you guys. Bears are winning Sunday, regardless of who's at quarterback. I think defense has been impressive the last two weeks. Uh, even in Cleveland, uh, they were on the field a lot. They kept the Bears in the ball game. They are going to play well at home. Maybe we get another defensive score in this ball game. Bears are going to win. The Lions are a lousy team. One other thing, we got one minute. We could talk about this for 30 minutes. There's a million things. I'm going to ask it this way. We know the Bears have got that bid for a whole bunch of land, a couple hundred acres out there at Arlington Heights. Surprise too is like $200 million or something yeah. for what can be a very, very profitable endeavor. Randall, here's the question. In the next five or six years, are the Chicago Bears playing football games in Arlington Heights? No, but only because I think it's going to take that long to get out of the lease with the city. I think 10 years from now, absolutely. You're playing out in uh, Virginia McCaskey land. Uh, out there in Arlington Heights. I think you're playing in a completely team-owned, completely modern, built-from-the-ground-up stadium. You're surrounded by hotels and shopping and restaurants, all of which the Bears own or develop. I think that is the very much the end game to this. I think it's going to be really messy getting there. I think it's going to be a really long time coming. But I think 10 years from now, I think 2031, you are going to see Bears land out there in Arlington Heights. Jeremy, are you in Bears land in Arlington Heights? Uh, well, if the Bears are there, I will be in Bears land in Arlington Heights. I hope to be. Um, but uh, I kind of agree with Randall in the fact that I, I in five years, I don't think it will be five years. Um, first of all, this thing, if it, even if, if they do close, which I assume they will close, but you never know what happens. Uh, they're not going to, it probably won't even be till 2023, possibly late 2022, but early 2023 before they even close on the property, which by the way, it's 327 acres, which is a huge property. It's big. SoFi Stadium, which we all saw the first week of the, of the season in Los Angeles. That's on 200 some odd acres. So this is a huge like a property too. that yeah. if they do go forward with it, they could develop and who in just so much out there. Um, but yeah, I, I think even if even if it all comes to even if everything works out for the Bears, they end up moving out there. I, I do think it will take a bit of time. First of all, while it's not a huge number the lease to break the lease is $84 million before 2026. Um, and then after that year, it goes down a lot. I'm not exactly how much it goes down, but from everything I've read, it goes down a lot after 2026. So I would think five years, I, I even if it happens, I don't think they'll be out there in five years. Okay. Well, uh, this is what I'm thinking. Maybe I'm just optimistic because the bears desperately need ownership. Desperately, desperately needing ownership. I think this was a move by the McCaskies to drive up the value of the franchise. We think the team's four and a half to $5 billion. They get more on an open market. Now you've got a 300-acre site with a possibility to build a new stadium, which not only gives you a ton of financial options there, but also gives you leverage against the city of Chicago. That's going to add value to the sale of the franchise. I do think the Bears are going to be in Arlington Heights. 
And I don't think the McCaskies are going to be owning the team. I, I whether that happens in five years or 10 years, that's the direction I think this is going. I think there's too much money to make on building a brand new stadium entertainment district. You put a dome on it, you get Super Bowls, you get Big Ten championships, you get national championships for both college football and college basketball, concerts, trade shows, you name it. This is the direction things are going. This is where the money is made in the National Football League right now. And Soldier Field will get new life moving forward. Home of the Chicago Fire, international events, concerts. Maybe they can renovate Soldier Field back to something more like what it used to be, where you can see the colonnades, you can still reduce capacity in the ballpark and make it a place for concerts and soccer games and other civic events in the city. But big changes are coming here. I just want this team to have new ownership. The fact that Matt Nagy has a job this week is embarrassing to me. I think he should have been fired. They should have just left him in Cleveland. Say, go home on your own. He shouldn't have been here to open this year. Neither should his boss have been. Give him, the old, want... give him the old Lane Kiffin. The old Lane Kiffin. Just leave him on the, on the tarmac. Yep, yep. Just, just sit out there and we'll take a, or get you a lift or something and we'll send you back to Chicago. My biggest fear with all of this is you've got this maybe once-in-a-lifetime type talent or this amazing talent here in Justin Fields don't screw this up. Don't mess up that guy's career. I just don't trust Nagy and Pace to do what they need to do in order to make Fields successful. So I, I, if they're beating the Lions this weekend, that'll be yeah. fun. I, I, you know, your optimism, I, I, I hope you're right um, in terms of the, the team being sold. I, I don't share that optimism, I, I think. And while it will obviously increase the value a ton and, and do wonders, I, I just I feel like it's going to be sold over Virginia McCaskey's dead body, which is probably what's going to happen when they have to face all the estate taxes. So it's kind of morbid to think about, but yeah. I, I see whatever that having, I, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen before that. <laughs> so. Well, we'll be tracking it. And Jeremy, I assume you're going to be out at soldier Sunday. Yep. I will definitely awesome. be out at soldier Sunday. We'll bring home a W Randall. Let's get some wins in St. Louis this weekend. We will be back next week for another edition of behind the yellow line with our first inaugural end of the season awards. We're excited. We're going to have fun with it. We'll see you next week here on the pod.